0: It's a damn tough life, full of toil and strife, we men undergo, and we don't give a damn when the gale is done how hard the winds did blow, cause we're homeward bound from the arctic ground with a good ship taut and free. And we won't give a damn when we drink our rum with the girls of Old Maui. Rolling down to Old Maui, me boys, rolling down to Old Maui. We're homeward bound from the Arctic ground, rolling down to Old Maui. Welcome to Higgledy Piggledy Whale Statements. I'm Mark. And I'm Ben uh today we are doing chapters 99 and 100 um the doubloon and uh leg and arm leg and arm the pequot of nantucket meets the samuel enderby of london
1: i feel like it sounds better to say doubloon and leg and arm like it has a it has a subtitle but leg and arm is all you need to communicate that chapter yeah it's a very good chapter
0: yeah, yeah. Uh, this time <laughs> you we've You say got... that every time, Ben. You can't just always say it's a very good chapter because it's meaningless. I say that every
1: time. I say that about some chapters. It's just that, yes, I... with frequency and the number of chapters we do per episode, we usually have at least one very good chapter. I, yes. It's I'm... a good book.
0: I, I agree. That's true.
1: <laughs> Fine. We have some very Ahab chapters. We also had, recently, the Triworks, which is a very Ahab chapter, but these are... Even more Ahab chapters.
0: Yeah, these these chapters are very much focusing on Ahab and Ahab's, uh, like, you know, um, Ahab's quest.
1: Uh... Ahab's emotions.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it kind of feels like uh, the, I mean, you know, in a way that's not dissimilar to what was going on in the Triworks. It's like, all right, all right, all right, uh, actual wailing. Sure, but remember what this book is actually about hunting the white whale?
1: <laughs> yeah, no, there's definitely a sense of i i mean this one even starts with like uh you know before this point we've I've told you about how Ahab does this one thing, but now I'm gonna actually detail it. This is a thing that Ishmael does a lot,
0: yeah, yeah, so so the um you know, the first sentence of the chapter talks about how it's been previously mentioned that Ahab has a habit of, like, pacing the quarterdeck.
1: Year now, it has been related how Ahab was wont to pace his quarter deck.
0: Okay. I'm just I am just said I, that. No, no, I
1: just, I think the way it's phrased is nice.
0: Sure, sure. Um, it's a little I, bit fancy. I, I, I was hesitant to actually quote it because I think we're going to be quoting a lot today and so That's I don't... entirely possible. I don't want to quote unless it's actually not possible to paraphrase because I feel like if we don't ourselves to that standard we'll just fucking read the whole chapter (sighs) okay (laughs) your thought was that wouldn't be so bad now was it wasn't it
1: not quite it was more you can totally paraphrase everything people other than ahab say (laughs) well that's not entirely true there's at least one person here where paraphrasing is difficult
0: anyway um so uh yeah, so basically that's something that's been previously established chapters and chapters and chapters ago. Yeah,
1: I did not go back and figure out where it was, but the idea that Ahab constantly paces the deck, that he has this particular route from uh, between the binnacle and the main mast, that he has, like, at his at the points where he turns, there's, like, little pe- uh, peg holes cut into the board for his leg. Yeah. This- These are all sort of established things But this is sort of elaborating on this practice.
0: Yeah, because uh, it's explained now that um, sometimes when he's doing this, he will kind of pause at either end and like gaze at uh, the two objects that are before him at that moment. Um, And at the end of the binnacle, which, by the way, what exactly is the binnacle? It's like a thing like at the stern uh, or is it the, at, at the extreme? It's at one extreme of the ship, right?
1: Yes, I believe it's at the stern near the helm because it's where the compass is.
0: Right, so that's the that's the object that he. Sees I believe at the, the binnacle.
1: binnacle is like the pole, like the short pole that a compass is on, that is often on the decks of ships. But I'm not positive. In okay. Fact, possibly we should just Google yeah, binnacle. Yeah, yeah, this is... I have much boat knowledge, in my opinion, but I don't have all boat knowledge.
0: Okay, yeah. The binnacle is. Yes, like... I was right. Yeah, it's like a it's like a cylindrical thing, um, on, on the, usually at the helm, where the, where the compass is.
1: So Um, I was just entirely correct. I am unstoppable. Anyways, yeah, so it's compass housing.
0: Yeah, so on one end of it, he's at the binnacle, and he'll gaze at the compass, uh, and that in its own way is him kind of, like, focusing on his dread purpose, right, because he's focusing on, like, the direction the ship is going, how they are, like, sailing towards, or at least he hopes towards Moby Dick
1: Yeah, it's it's his, char- his ability to chart uh, the boats, uh, the ship's uh, journey And therefore his ability to have a direction
0: Yes, but then the other end uh, at the mainmast, uh, The object that he's staring at there Is the gold doubloon that he nailed to the mast um,
1: We did mention that this chapter is called the doubloon
0: <laughs> Yes, so uh, that too obviously is a... a uh, reference back to something that happened chapters and chapters ago, uh, but I I can't imagine anyone has forgotten Ahab nailing that coin to the mast.
1: Yeah, I we should mention that he specifically said that whoever sights the white whale, you know, and and yells there he blows will get the doubloon, which is just a big chunk of gold. Yes. Um, and I really like actually the language here, where um, you know it's very straightforward as a little you know sort of linguistic trick, but it's. Um, saying that uh, when he looks on the um, on the compass, he it is with pointed gaze on the pointing compass, and then when he's looking at the uh, doubloon, it's a riveted gaze to the uh, doubloon, which has been riveted to the mast. And yeah. similarly, uh, he has a um, nailed firmness to him, to his aspect that's hopeful, but also very dedicated. And so there's this idea, once again, that the Pequot externalizes... Uh, Ahab's own sort of internal drive, monomania, and even like conflicts and redirections. So I just really like this thing where there's this little world Ahab paces within on the quarter deck that goes between his, um, the sort of external direction that he's, that draws him on and the internal purpose that fixes him to it.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think there's also some suggestion that. It's not just, because you said that it's like the ship externalizes what's going on with Ahab, and I think that's true, but I think there's also a sense that, like, Ahab, by pacing between and, like, focusing on these objects, is, like reconfirming himself no, in think, his fervor. like it's, I think
1: you're right. There's the this, objects
0: I, are also working on him in some kind of way.
1: Yeah, no, I don't think you're wrong. I, I, I entirely think you're right. Like I said, I, I think that there is both, both aspects are in motion where on the one hand, Ahab Put these things there. He set the course. He nailed the doubloon, literally. Mm -hmm. And then, on the other hand, these objects then, as you say, work on him. He sees the doubloon and his purpose is refixed. He sees the compass and he can modify his direction. And so the internal and external world of Ahab are coinciding both sort of mystically, but also by his action.
0: Yeah, definitely. (sighs) Uh... And the uh, the kind of inciting incident for this chapter uh, Is that on one occasion, one morning um, As he's heading, as he's passing by the doubloon uh, And
1: this is actually a morning around this time in the narrative Because uh, the characters are in the situations that they will be After the most recent successful whale hunt.
0: Yes, yeah, this is not a, a reference back to like Maybe shortly after Ahab nailed the doubloon. This is this is in this period of the story,
1: which Ishmael does not in any way signal other than by by character situations. So, um, took me a little while to be like, okay, was this this is this like that thing with the triworks where this is way back when, or is this right now?
0: Yeah. Um, and uh, what basically Ahab first for you know unknown reasons starts to like stare at and like interpret the doubloon. For the fr- as if for the first time. Um.
1: And uh, specifically, it's like, it's inscriptions, what's printed on the doubloon, not the doubloon as a piece of gold alone, but as something which carries markings. Yeah. And I really like this next bit. Uh, may, may I read this go next ahead, bit? Go ahead, go ahead. And some certain significance lurks in all things, else all things are little worth, and the round world itself but an empty cipher, except to sell by the cartload as they do hills about Boston, to fill up some morass in the Milky Way. There's this, like, idea that, well, the coin has to mean something. There has to be some significance lurking, or at least Ishmael thinks so, or else the world is empty. The world is meaningless. And uh, that reference to hills about Boston is basically—is that the back bay?
0: Yeah, I think that's what that's talking about. So at, at one when he says, like, carting hills around Boston, he's talking, I think, about uh, how— in the 19th century, I'm pretty sure— okay, I'm, again, gonna Google this, but— uh, so there's a neighborhood in Boston called the Back Bay Which used to be
1: Yeah construction little... began in 1859
0: Okay so actually this wouldn't have been This didn't really happen by the time this book was written But there must have been other neighborhoods Other parts of Boston well. where this happened So basically it, it at one time was literally a bay Literally it was mm-hmm. water And they filled it in with dirt To make it land
1: and then they built expensive houses on it.
0: Yeah. Um, um, it is it is now, like, definitely one of the kind of, like, uh, fancier downtown neighborhoods in Boston.
1: Yep, yep. Um, Our resident asshole. Jeez.
0: <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, so yeah, I guess he's not talking specifically about the back bay here because that I mean, hadn't it's happened possible, yet. But... it's
1: possible that it started being filled in a little bit, it's just that it hadn't been undertaken as a major project to construct luxury housing.
0: Yeah, I suppose, I mean, Wikipedia like said construction began in 1859. Mm, I thought
1: that meant, like, the buildings. Yeah, I don't know. Anyways. It Does, doesn't really the, the matter. The, the, part part is, is that...
0: the point is that people did literally carry dirt from hills around Boston to fill up Morasses, Literal morasses. Yes.
1: And the sort of implication here is that dirt's dirt. It works the same in one place as another. You're treating it as pure material. Like, this is basically saying there's some kind of meaning that lurks in physical things that have that are of importance or else everything is just matter. It's just dirt. It's just stuff that fills up space. And the doubloon... At least, according to Ishmael, is not this. It has some significance, which Ahab is now trying to draw out.
0: Yes. Um. Uh, and uh, first, there's just sort of a description of like what this doubloon is uh, before we're going to get to the actual to kind of like Ahab's interpretation of it. Um. And it is, you know, it is a, a big gold coin, <laughs> uh, huh. m- minted in in Ecuador. Um. And uh, this, I I, I think. You know, it's kind of discussed throughout this chapter as like a part of a type of, you know, gold coins, gold doubloons minted in South America um, that are, you know, just like found on the ocean at this time, right? Yep. Um, This is, this kind of coin is where we get the idea of like a gold doubloon in like pirate stories and stuff like that.
1: Yes, this is, this is our doubloon.
0: Yeah, this is a, this is, you know, the same kind of like, I think it's not literally the same type of coin, but this is the same kind of symbolic register as, like, pieces of eight.
1: Well, no, that is the same kind of coin, because a doubloon is just a certain weight size of, of Right, but I think coin. a piece
0: of eight is smaller than this yes, coin. Yes,
1: a piece of eight is when you chop a doubloon into eight pieces.
0: Right, yes. Like, you
1: physically chop it because gold is soft.
0: Yes, that's right. Also, to be clear... So,
1: pieces of eight are, like, fractions of this.
0: Yeah, this also, this is a $16 doubloon. So, this is actually, like, double the size. Yeah, this is, like, the
1: size... It's not really the size of a dinner plate, but it's big.
0: Yeah, this is a huge... I think
1: of it as being the size of a dinner plate, but that's because my brain doesn't really have a strong sense of how much gold is worth, like, context... like. Yeah, volume. like it is,
0: it's, it's huge for a gold coin, but actually, here we go. I'm gonna, I'm gonna just try to find out how literally big in size a doubloon would have been.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, um,
0: so, yeah, okay, so Wikipedia says the doubloon was worth approximately $4. So this is quadruple the size of a typical
1: that's entirely possible um yeah so so actually just to read wikipedia spanish american gold coins were minted in one half one two four and eight escudo denominations with each escudo worth around two spanish dollars or two dollars uh which means that the eight escudo the largest size of doubloon would have been a 16 dollar doubloon so it is the largest size of doubloon
0: yeah um Um, but but i'm trying to find if they have any information about
1: Actual set Moby Dick coin is its own. Is its own. Oh
0: yeah, no, yeah. Well, because there is a there is a specific specific
1: Ecuadorian.
0: There's an Ecuadorian eight escudo or sixteen dollar doubloon, and that's exactly what is being referred to in this chapter. So of course it is known in you know known in the numismatic world.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, that that makes sense. It's uh it's extensively just in fact Wikipedia quotes this chapter to describe it and uh. Apparently in Netflix's Carmen Sandiego, I'm assuming one gets stolen.
0: Yeah, that that sounds like something that would happen in Carmen Sandiego. Yeah. All right, I'm gonna see if I can find out because I just really want to know how physically large it is.
1: Obviously, it's much more emotionally large.
0: Well, yeah, but uh, okay. The coin has a diameter of one point seventy five inches. So. So actually, yeah, that's a pretty fucking big coin. Yeah, it's
1: it's larger than uh, like a silver dollar. Yes. But uh, it's still not the thing that I constantly imagine, which is, like, the size of a small plate. It's oh, not wait a that minute. at all.
0: Sorry. This thing that I just quoted as being that big is a... Well, it's a replica. Right, but I... Hmm, I suppose... It weighs about
1: an ounce, which is appropriate, which is the correct si- uh, weight. So, However, this is zinc, so it, the real yeah, one would no, probably so be smaller.
0: I, this is a replica coin, which is cool, but I want to know the actual...
1: Numismatic... Well, here, how about, uh... Okay. Collector's Universe Moby Dick gold piece. Uh... We're getting really off track with the numismatics here.
0: I don't think this is off track at all.
1: I mean, we're Googling. This
0: this, this chapter is about this coin. Uh, Um...
1: Anyways, these do look quite cool. They are one troy ounce of gold. uh, About the size of a silver dollar is the way people are describing it. Um... I don't think this has the precise... uh, I think the problem is also that because they're by weight, the size may vary slightly. Yeah, they're not
0: really talking about the, like... Oh, man, that's
1: a great image of uh, Peck as Ahab holding up the coin and doing a face.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right, well, anyway, big fucking coin. Yeah, it's Um, it's a
1: large coin. It weighs an ounce. It's solid gold. It's uh, quido gold, so it's it's from a specific part of uh, Ecuador. um, And... Uh, there's a lot made of how it's like really nice gold Like the gold itself is visually impressive It's uh It this... shines It shines and also very importantly Um uh, Nobody steals it
0: Yeah like it's it, you know It's explained that like it is There's lots of time During the middle of the night when someone theoretically Could have uh crept up And like pried it off the mask, But everyone uh all the mariners revered it as the white whale's talisman. So you know, there's there's a uh, there's too much legend to this coin for anyone to feel comfortable stealing
1: it. Yeah, there and they they gossip about who who might be the one to claim it and will they live to spend it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Ah,
1: that's it's good. Also, I really like this little this line. Um, Though now nailed amidst all the rustiness of iron bolts and the verdigris of copper spikes, yet untouchable and immaculate to any foulness, it still preserved its quito glow. And I really like that because it's very much stressing that this, like, this is both a physical object, which has importance as a physical object, but as a symbol, it's untouchable. It's not really entirely accessible. And part of that's just that gold doesn't rust. So, yes, a gold fixing on a ship that's got you know, salt water on it all the time, therefore everything's going to be rusted and verdigreed, is going to stand out as bright, as lustrous, as untouched. Despite the fact that this is fundamentally a metallic quality, this still gives it a certain symbolic quality as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I would like to read the description of just, like, the actual imagery on the coin. Because mm-hmm. uh, I think that's... I mean, we're going to get... Uh, Throughout this chapter successive interpretations of what this imagery might mean. So I think we want to we should have as a foundation
1: What it just looks like yeah, so you're saying that the the physical object is fundamentally more real than the symbol and (laughs) But no it is important to know what specific things they're all interpreting. I will also say there's a brief thing about how um these noble golden coins of South America are, like, there's a specific quality to the gold that Ishmael
0: Well, I think associates. it's also, it's also not just, okay, I mean, so, I do want to read uh, this one bit that, that, that I'll, I'll, these noble golden coins of South America are as medals of the sun and tropic token pieces. So he's, he's like, they're not just, you know, they, they, like, represent something incredibly kind of, uh, you know, precious and dramatic and, and tropical. Yeah. Here, palms, alpacas, and volcanoes, suns, discs, and stars, ecliptics, horns of plenty, and rich banners waving, are in luxuriant profusion stamped. So that the precious gold seems almost to derive an added preciousness and enhancing glories, by passing through those fancy mints, so spanishly poetic. And so what he's expressing here is, it almost seems like the gold is more valuable because it has all these beautiful and interesting symbols on it, and I'm like, Ishmael, that's literally what a mint is for. By putting a mark on money, you make it more valuable by certifying its, like...
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Like
0: Like, I, I, you know, I think there is a certain, like, you know... In the modern world, uh, minted coins are worth usually significantly more than their,
1: uh... Metallic value? M-
0: yeah, than their metallic value. Well,
1: it's, it's interesting. Some of them aren't. Like, pennies, I think, are slightly more expensive to make and, in terms of money, than they are to, uh... Yes, but use. most most, most coins American are, yes. coins.
0: I think most coins in general, uh, the way they, they're they're worth as as currency is more than they're worth as metal. Yeah, and that is what like minting them does. Um, yeah, and and I think you know these gold coins on some level they, they're, not, they're not they're not
1: like fiat currency.
0: That's the term no, for you're, it. No, you're you're right. You're absolutely correct. It's just I'm rolling my eyes because I f- think of that as a phrase only used by obnoxious people. <laughs> but yes, no, you're right. Like the the reason the reason you can go and spend this coin in like Massachusetts, even though it is like from mints in a totally different country that like does not exactly have like clear trade relations with Massachusetts, except via this kind of you know. Yeah, it's, uh, it is shipping. itself
1: supposed to be a store of value by being a precious metal, rather than representative of a store of value and
0: and and the uh, and, and the minting is, I think, mostly meant to certify yes, this is one hundred percent gold. This
1: is from Quito. This, you know, we will we will say yes, this is one hundred percent gold. Don't worry about it. Um, you know, weigh it, and the weight will be the value in precious metals. And obviously, you know, precious metals are very silly to me, but there's a reason why you know. Pirate treasure is very fungible in this yeah, era. Yeah, yeah,
0: but but anyway, <laughs> the point is though that I think it's very funny that Ishmael's like it almost seems as though by by stamping <laughs> this metal, its its value has somehow been increased. Altered,
1: increased?
0: It must be aesthetic. It's because the images on it are so cool.
1: <laughs> I mean, uh, one thing that has never entered Ishmael's mind is monetary policy. <laughs> Thankfully. Also, uh, I do think it's funny because you you come to this and you're just like, oh, this this is hilarious because it's, you know, Ishmael's like, oh my God, what does a mint do? It's fascinating. And for me, it's just really funny that he described them as fancy mints.
0: <laughs> yes. Like, I just
1: think that's a funny turn of phrase due to, you know, historical distance.
0: Yeah. No, it does kind of, the phrase fancy mints out of context makes me think of like, just like after dinner mints.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was thinking of that and also fancy dogs. Yeah. <laughs> All like, right. Like, f- using fancy to describe something is kind of, it's almost diminutive.
0: Yeah, yeah, it is a little bit, yeah. Um, all right, so so I do want to read, like, just the, mm-hmm. the description of the images on the coin. On its round border, it bore the letters, República del Ecuador, Quito. So this bright coin came from a country planted in the middle of the world and beneath the great equator and named after it. And it had been cast midway up the Andes, in the unwaning climb that knows no autumn. Zoned by those letters, you saw the likeness of three Andes summits, from one aflame, a tower on another, on the third a crowing cock, while arching over all was a segment of the partitioned zodiac, the signs all marked with their usual cabalistics, and the keystone sun entering the equinoctial point at Libra. Um, so this is, the, the imagery on this coin is very much, uh, representing the place where it's from, right? Yeah. Like, the the mountains representing the Andes, and then the the ecliptic representing
1: the equator. I just realized, since this is a known coin that people collect, we can, like, post in the description of the episode a picture of the doubloon.
0: You're right. We should totally do that.
1: Yeah. Um, I can't
0: believe that didn't occur to me until now.
1: <laughs> no, I, I was sort of like, we're Googling it, we're looking at it, and slowly turning in my mind the wheels of, wait, we could... Share this visual information and I think it is also probably gonna be interesting for readers to look at uh, The coin and think about how it was described in the book and see even Ishmael obviously is interpreting because he's trying to describe it in a way That is clear, but he says things like their usual kabbalistics and the equinoctial point. He's not being like, incredibly flat in descriptive, in fact, being quite fancy.
0: Yeah, although I will say, I think I think the things he's saying are fairly specific. Oh, when yeah, yeah, says, they are. When he says they're usual cabalistics," he means, like, the usual symbols that represent oh, yeah, the Zodiac. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, I don't mean that he's being, like, more interpretive or less clear than, you know, the various people who will come yet. I just mean to say that uh, it's being rendered in text, and so, you're comparing text to text, but the thing is, His readers, in theory could have run into and uh, certainly we now can look up on Google the physical coin that is being like used as a reference for the symbol and I just find that interesting.
0: It is interesting. One thing that I'm not totally sure about and I'm not going to Google it right now but I'll do this research when I'm trying to find the image to post later is like um, I don't know for sure and I'm sure some numismatic scholars out there have determined whether this was a like a physical coin that definitely existed in the eighteen hundreds, um, like I find it perfectly believable I mean, that there was a real coin like there. Like I that. think
1: the Moby Dick coin. Well, that was is just the
0: Moby Dick coin just a uh, a replica? sixteen? I think it might be. I think the Moby Dick coin is a sixteen dollar Ecuador coin from the nineteenth century. Oh, so
1: any any Quito coin would be that, rather. Whereas this is a specific. You're talking about the specific imagery on it.
0: Yes, I'm. I'm talking about. Is there? Was there actually? Do we have in a museum somewhere in some private collection an actual uh, $16 keto-minted 19th century coin with three mountains Mountains on it with a flame, flame, tower, tower and a a crowing crowing cock? cock. Like, that's the question I'm asking, and I don't know the answer to that, but I will find out later and post pictures of it for you, listeners.
1: Um, (laughs) You're very kind to the listeners. Um, um, (sighs) All right, so... We now know what the coin looks like, generally speaking, and if you want to have a, you know, a written-out description of this, it is on the Moby Dick coin Wikipedia page <laughs> as well, because they just quoted the whole section.
0: Yeah. Uh, so now, time for Ahab's thoughts as he gazes at this coin. Um, which, by the way, this is one of those moments in this story where I'm kind of like, uh, w- where the... Where somebody's, like, dialogue being included implies Ishmael kind of eavesdropping.
1: Yeah, the, this entire sequence, actually, because what happens here, because I think from here we're just going to want to talk about each person's thing, so we should quickly describe the general scene, which is Ahab looks at coin, talks about it for a while, then leaves. Then Starbuck immediately goes... Hmm, what was he looking at? Goes up and looks at it, talks about it for a little while, then leaves. Stubb, who was also watching Starbuck after Ahab, goes up, silicaes it, and then because he's Stubb, instead of leaving, hides nearby to watch who else is going to do it. And we see the rest of the chapter from Stubb's perspective until the very end. And uh, both Fla- and Flask, Queequeg... Um, um, the
0: Manxman? Yes,
1: the old Manxman. Uh, and then Pip. Yes, and Pip. All come up and give interpretations, some of which we are not actually privy to.
0: Yeah, they all just everyone just uh, a whole list of people all just kind of go up and look at the coin and interpret it in some way. Yes,
1: and this chapter is ultimately from Stubbs' perspective because
0: oh, oh, you also left out one Fadala. Fadala. Oh also yes, Fadala
1: also passes by uh, shortly after Queequeg, You're right, and but um, a number of these we don't get full interpretations because Stub either doesn't care to listen in or they don't talk to themselves while looking at things
0: yeah um yeah and i i think there's something very interesting about the fact that um uh the first two like ahab's musings are explicitly not actually heard by any of the other people Mm -hmm. like starbuck and stubb both watch Ahab look at the coin and kind of interpret his expression as he leaves. Yeah, him.
1: and wonder what he said.
0: Yeah, but neither Starbuck nor Stubb actually hears what Ahab says here. Um, and I also think it's interesting in some ways that um, everyone, I, I, I think every other talk about the coin, I'll, as we go through the chapter, I'll make sure whether this mm-hmm. is the case, but it's definitely true of both Starbuck and Stubb, that they are... The things they say are explicitly p- placed in dialogue. It's murmured yes. Starbuck to himself, soliloquized Stubb. Yes, yes. But there's nothing actually saying that Ahab is saying this out loud. All it says is, before the Yeah, second... he was
1: pausing. It yeah. doesn't... Yeah, it could be internal, uh, like, internal monologue. And
0: and, and we've seen things that Ahab... There have been parts of this book where there have been things that Ahab, like... Things that are quoted from Ahab that are presented in this way that basically feels like, you know, like Shakespearean soliloquy, Mm -hmm. uh, where it is hard to say whether we're actually meant to believe he literally said this out loud and Ishmael was eavesdropping. Not to mention he literally
1: does Shakespearean soliloquy during important scenes with Starbuck where he like steps aside and says, now I have him my magnets to his brain. Exactly right. like a Shakespearean character. Yes,
0: and like Starbuck doesn't hear him in yes. that moment. Yeah, yes. no, it's it's uh I, I just think, you know, this is one of those moments where uh the kind of literalness of like who is kind of reporting on it is a little more ambiguous. Although I yes. do like to imagine Ishmael Ish, Ishmael eavesdropping for all of this. However,
1: um No, no, no I think it's a good point. And it is really interesting how on some level the different characters have honestly almost generically in the sense of genre different ways of interacting with the medium like only as far as i can tell uh ahab does actual soliloquies except for stub that one time when he's fucking with the french yeah yeah but Stubbs aside there is like definitely like a comic soliloquy yeah whereas ahab gets to have like deep emotional thoughts presented as if he were you know strutting a stage um in the middle of major events because Ahab has that sort of tragic glory to him, and that, so it feels correct that you should have this from Ahab, even though in the actual story, it's very clear that Ahab's incredibly tight-lipped about what he's thinking, and people are constantly trying to interpret him, even as he, like, you know, grimaces and speaks to the audience.
0: Yeah, yeah. All right, let's 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 get to the actual, the actual fucking literary interpretation of this coin as a text.
1: Ah, uh, yeah, no, I... I love Ahab's. I mean, I always love everything Ahab says, because I'm just here for Ahab.
0: Yeah, so I don't think- look, we can't just read every single person's interpretation, but I think we should read Ahab's. Okay. Do you want to do it?
1: A little. Go for it. Thank you. There's something ever egotistical in mountaintops and towers, and all other grand and lofty things. Look here. Three peaks as proud as Lucifer. The firm tower. That is Ahab. The volcano, that is Ahab. The courageous, the undaunted and victorious fowl, that too is Ahab. All are Ahab, and this round gold is but the image of the rounder globe, which, like a magician's glass, to each and every man in turn but mirrors back his own mysterious self. Great pains, small gains for those who ask the world to solve them. It cannot solve itself. Methinks now this coined sun wears a ruddy face, but see... Aye, he enters the sign of storms, the equinox. And but six months before, he wheeled out a former equinox at Ares. From storm to storm, so be it then. Born in throes, tis fit that man should live in pangs and die in pangs. So be it then. Here's stout stuff for woe to work on. So be it then.
0: Yeah, so I I think it's very interesting, just going over this, that um, both this version, where like, the coin is, like, this sort of incredible symbol that is, like, everything that Ahab thinks about. And also the, like, kind of deeply, uh, like...
1: Solipsistic?
0: No, no, no. The, oh. the like, deeply material mm, idea that yeah. was presented earlier in the chapter of, like, well, if this coin doesn't mean anything, then the world doesn't mean anything. In both of these, the coin is the world like
1: mm, if, yes.
0: if the if the world is like this unsolvable mystery that is also the unsolvable mystery of man then so is the coin oh. and if the world means nothing and is just a lump of dirt then the coin means nothing
1: yeah no i think that's true and also that makes this a Fascinating literary because I guarantee Melville was aware of the shield of Achilles Mm. and the concept in you know in the Iliad I mean,
0: I think the shield of Achilles has come up in this book
1: before I think it has the the idea within the Iliad that uh, the shield of Achilles is this incredibly like I think either master wrought or God wrought object that Depicts so much in so much detail and because it was a you know an oral epic the depiction is itself an act of memorization so there's this incredibly long description of everything that is on the shield and so Authors in English, but generally, you know, post-Greek European authors have used the shield of Achilles as a figure for like stories, books, the image of the world because this incredibly dense description that becomes almost Impossible because it's like no way a shield has that much on it. It's you know, the detail would be unreadable It would be Incredible becomes this symbol for the object which reflects the entire world and contains it. And it's fascinating to me that the doubloon, which has a very specific set of images on it, and they're relatively few, has somehow been elevated to the level of Achilles' shield, which depicts all things.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I think, you know, I think one of the things that's going on in this chapter, uh, subtly... Uh, Because, you know, at the beginning the idea that maybe the coin doesn't really mean anything and maybe nothing really means anything Mm -hmm. is introduced. And now we're going to see like a a series of different interpretations, you know, which are in some sense kind of mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. And so I think maybe one suggestion is, yeah, maybe all of these are wrong. Maybe the coin doesn't mean anything. And the fact that so many people can interpret it as meaning so many different things tells you that there's nothing there, really. Yeah, Um, I think that's... But I don't think the chapter is really, like, saying that. I think it's just kind of making that idea possible.
1: Yeah, once, once again, this book is very invested in creating an ambiguity between does this have a fundamental meaning or is it fundamentally meaningless? Is the white whale God or is the white whale simply an animal that Ahab has a beef with?
0: Yeah, and, and, to and put I put
1: it as, you know, diminutively as possible.
0: <laughs> yes, and, and I think, you know, uh, certainly... Uh, one way you can look at this, which kind of solves, I guess, (laughs) that, that issue is, is to say what Ahab says, which is that, uh, this, uh, I mean, this coin, like the world reflects back to people what is in them. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and, you know, Ahab does kind of, in some sense, like, reject the idea of interpretation. On some level, I guess he's saying... You cannot actually get any real knowledge out of like studying and interpreting the world, because the world the world cannot solve itself, so it can't solve you. Like to contemplate the world is ultimately just to contemplate the self, and both are kind of uh, equally equally deep. Not necessarily totally impossible. Like I think. Uh, but
1: greatest things are most unspeakable. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's also interesting because this is not, I don't think it's actually in precise tension with his interest in the Sphinx, in the the secrets of the deep, the secrets of the world, because Ahab does want to open up the world and understand it. I think that what he's expressing here is that the way you open up the world and understand it is through that sort of deep pneumatic knowledge and genius of the self that, you know, the, the sort of Gnostic understanding where the world is mysterious because it is set in a in an actual relationship with humans it's not it's not that it's a material world with nothing going on like a purely material world that then psychologically you reflect or maybe he's considering that possibility but i think he's also sort of saying that the world is here for the purpose of this sort of human drama that humans are that the individual the self is reflected in the world because the world has some relation to it and so you know all of these things are ahab it's not he's not saying i see myself in these he's saying they are me yeah. it's an almost solipsistic perspective that no these do mean something because i am a pillar of meaning i am where meaning comes from and therefore they mean me
0: yes yeah um and he's also by the way drawing a connection between like um the zodiac and the weather and, like, human life and human Mm -hmm. suffering. Uh, So this uh, we should maybe explicate a little bit this thing about the sign of storms. Um, He's talking about, uh, you know, I think it was uh, previously established. Yeah, so the the sun is entering the equinoctial point at Libra. So Libra is the sign that corresponds to the autumnal equinox. Um, Mm -hmm. Like, when... I mean, I think this is one of those things where uh, the, like... When the sun in the real world is visible in Libra, the constellation, that's not the same time period that people count as corresponding to Libra, the zodiac sign. Um, (sighs) But, but, it is, Libra is associated with the autumnal equinox, which is supposed to be when there is stormy weather.
1: Yeah. Um, The equinox being the point in, you know, the changing of seasons where the day and night are of equal length.
0: Yes. And then... Uh, six months before, he wheeled out of a former equinox at Aries. What he means is that's the uh, vernal equinox, the same, the, the period at the other end of the year when the day and night are of equal length in the spring. Yeah, which
1: and, sort of logically follows. It has to exist.
0: Right, and that's the, <laughs> you know, Libra and Aries are, are on, like, you know, basically those are signs on on opposite sides of the... Um,
1: Zodiac circle, yeah, the, ecliptic. Of the
0: ecliptic. Yeah, the ecliptic, yeah. And... So Ahab is basically saying Okay, well the sun Goes over the course of the year From one stormy sign To another uh, So the it Kind of um, implying like The whole trip is stormy even Yeah, though, or at the
1: very least Even if there's a calm period in the middle It's beginning and end are defined by storms
0: Yes, and then uh, This too is, is human life Um And uh yeah, this is I think one place where like the 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 question of like does he think it's like man's life is woe and therefore that is reflected in the world or does he think like cuz you know the way people think about the zodiac and mm-hmm. astrology it is all it is also quite common to suggest that like the way things are in the stars influences the way things yeah, are yeah. in life. And I think I think Ahab is being ambiguous here about what direction if either the Influence goes or whether it's not so much a sense Of influence as just you know A a sense of correspondence
1: Yeah Um, as above so below
0: Yes exactly
1: Um, yeah I I definitely think He says here's stout stuff for Woe to work on he's suggesting That this is something that you could easily become You know woeful about Possibly implying you could easily take a fatalistic Perspective here Uh, But he's unmoved by this so Be it then
0: yeah Alright shall we uh
1: yeah, Move on. To... I just want to say formally I really like that for almost all of these uh, speeches They go from one to the next with very little f- Like it's literally the quotation ends The next quotation begins um, as though it were dialogue Even though it's revealed that they're not in fact responding to each other So there's effectively a dialogue Despite none of the characters being in the same place at the same time Yeah I just like it as a formal little thing
0: Yeah, it's cool uh, so the next the next interpreter is Starbuck, who who kind of uh, notices that Ahab has been looking at it and like reading it, and and is like, oh, this is like this is scary, this is suspicious.
1: Yeah, um, and he his first line is sort of like effectively saying, why is he looking at it now? What new thing can it possibly mean to him? It must be the devil at work, like in the sense I think sort of metaphorically of Ahab must have some new like thoughts in his mind. Uh his specific description is that uh you know, no fairy fingers can have pressed the gold, but devil's claws must have left their moldings there since yesterday. So like, you know, no no good thing has happened here. The gold has not developed a new meaning that is good, but it's possible it's developed one that is evil.
0: Yes. Um and uh yeah, you know, um, I kind of want to read Starbuck's interpretation Sure, sure. Here. Sorry I, to take a no, sentence No, it. it's okay. It's okay. I just, I wasn't sure if I thought it was, but I, but I actually think, like, because I think that Starbuck is doing as much of, like, a detailed exegesis here as Ahab is. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, no fairy fingers can have pressed the gold, but devil's claws must have left their moldings there since yesterday, murmured Starbuck to himself, leaning against the bulwarks. The old man seems to read Belshazzar's awful writing. I have never marked the coin inspectingly. He goes below. Let me read. A dark valley between three mighty, heaven-abiding peaks, that almost seem the Trinity in some faint earthly symbol. So in this veil of death God girds us round, and over all our gloom the sun of righteousness still shines a beacon and a hope. If we bend down our eyes the dark veil shows her moldy soil, but if we lift them the bright sun meets our glance halfway to cheer. Yet, oh, the great sun is no fixture. And if at midnight we would fain snatch some sweet solace from him, we gazed for him in vain. This coin spe- speaks wisely, mildly, truly, but still sadly to me. I will quit it, lest truth shake me falsely. Um, so, this is a, like, basically a polar opposite interpretation from Ahab's in some sense, because mm-hmm. he sees the 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 mountaintops as the God. trinity, um, as opposed to, you know, uh, like as prideful as lucifer right um and
1: uh it's funny to me that you you translated it from proud to prideful
0: (sighs) yeah well anyway um and uh like one thing that i was like vaguely curious about and i don't think there's like actually a good answer to this but i did think for a second about like i wonder which peak he thinks is which part of the trinity (laughs) um
1: yeah is is god the father a cock or a volcano well or a tower
0: so I think that most likely the Holy Spirit is the volcano because it's a flame.
1: Mm, yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, but yeah, I don't know. It's not actually worth. He doesn't say <laughs> anything about that. I no. think he's just like here. Like, here are three lofty things, and therefore that suggests the Trinity to me. Yeah,
1: um, I'll. I'll be honest. I I think that Starbucks exegesis here is weak because he's entire. He's intending. A Christian allegory, and it's always what he's going to find. When he says in some faint earthly symbols, ah, there's three big things, therefore the Trinity. He is ignoring well, half- he's ignoring half the things on the coin. Uh,
0: but Ahab just looked at all three things and said, These are all Ahab. But Ahab it, didn't have any deep thoughts about why it's a volcano either.
1: No, but what I'm saying is that Starbuck is specifically like Starbucks' takeaway from this is precisely a para- an existing sort of sermon. He's all He knows what he looks to find in it.
0: Well, okay, so I, I agree with you that on some level Starbuck is a weaker interpreter than Ahab, but I disagree with you that it has to do with specifically what he sees in the coin. I think it's the fact that he sees something of meaning in the coin and then he turns away from it. So like, because what he sees in the coin, the message that he takes out of it, is, you say it's just sort of a conventional sermon, But I actually think that what he sees is, I mean, kind of part of the message of the tripods, right? Mm -hmm. Because he's like, well, you know, he takes out of it, yes, this very conventional idea of, like, even in the depths of valleys and the depths of, like, suffering. In the the
1: literal valley of the shadow of death.
0: Yes, we can look up and see the sun. Uh, But then he, like, reflects in exactly the same way that Ishmael did in the tripods, that actually the sun is not always in the sky, and... There are times when you might be, when, when, you know, salvation is not at hand. Mm -hmm. And he kind of recognizes that that is true, but that that's like a truth that he can't handle.
1: Or that if he were to engage with it, it will shake him falsely, which I take to mean, you know, and I, I don't know how closely this is correct to the language. I take it to mean that he's worried that it will cause him to doubt. It will cause him to be false to his faith.
0: Yeah, no, I think you're right. Um, and I think that that is... B- because, like, I think fundamentally uh, what Ahab says about how uh, the the world... To each and every man in turn but mirrors back His own mysterious self I think that's true and I think that the Sort of doubt and contradiction that Starbuck is seeing in this coin Is something that's in Starbuck Mm -hmm. But unlike Ahab who is like Aware of his own contradictions And his own woe and who says So be it then to that uh, Starbuck is not willing to Confront that that
1: Mm, He's not willing to To see all of himself in the coin Yes um Yeah, that's... I think that's true. I still think that the... Like, I think that he managed to arrive at that kind of truth, but I really think that his... Like, Ahab is saying, I see all of the things that are in this coin, but I melt them all down into one thing, because Ahab's a monomaniac. I'm not saying that it's not fundamentally Ahab being solipsistic and monomaniacal about it, but also I think that Starbuck is conventional and so he sees these things and finds the phrase some faint earthly symbol really stands out to me because there's not really much going on here the sun element of his symbolism is much more easily sort of defensible but the uh the mountains being the trinity feels very even he says it's faint it's that he's reaching
0: yeah, no, I, I, that's fair. I, I do think you're right that that element of this interpretation is kind of a, a stretch. Um, he just
1: wanted to start with Christianity and he assumed it would be there even though this is a coin that has been printed with some things that say South America so that it can be recognized as lucre.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, um, by the way, I also did want to just uh, explain a reference that Starbuck makes mm-hmm. here when he says the old man seems to read Belshazzar's awful writing. Uh, that is alluding to the Book of Daniel... Where the uh, the Babylonian well king in the Book of Daniel, hist- yeah, yeah, there is yeah. a historical Belshazzar who uh, very pointedly never took the title of king. <laughs> um, but anyway, the the Book of Daniel version of Belshazzar is not like identical to the historical fan fiction.
1: <laughs> Sorry, I just wanted to hurt you
0: Wikipedia referred to the book of Daniel as historical fiction Which, which is I also
1: think, very fun I
0: think is a very interesting way <laughs> yeah. to talk about it I mean, it, like, it is true that we do not in the modern era Consider the book of Daniel to be, like, objective historical fact But I think the idea that, like, the people composing it after the Maccabean revolt Were like, let's write some fiction Is a little, <laughs> like, I don't think that's what they were doing <laughs> Anyway, so, Belshazzar's awful writing, um is about this event in in the book of Daniel, where uh, the the king Belshazzar uh, is at like a feast, and writing appears on the wall. This is where we get the phrase like reading the writing on the wall um, at, to mean you know like becoming aware of like something terrible that is obviously about to happen. Uh, so Belshazzar sees this writing. And he calls for... Well, first he calls for his own, like, wise men, but they're unable to interpret it.
1: Um, Literally unable to read it, since it's very straightforward.
0: Uh, well, I mean, it's a little... Uh, in terms of the literal meaning of the words on the wall, I think it actually does require some interpretation. Okay. But, um... So then uh, then he sends for uh, Daniel, um, you know, book of, uh, and, and Daniel interprets it as meaning... Uh, you have been weighed and found. Oh, right. Wanting. This is
1: where that comes from. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. No, I, I thought for a second that the actual ter- phrase had been you had been weighed and come wanting I was like, I always thought it was Mene Mene Tekel a Yeah. So it's. But it is. It's,
0: it's, yeah. The words are Mene Mene Tekel a farsen and, and I think that. I don't think that that literally directly translates no, no, to the thing that Daniel reads it at. In fact, like, okay, this is something I'm not actually totally sure about, but I think those might be.
1: Like denominations of coins? No, or no. Weights?
0: I think they might be like. I don't think those are like. I think we can Hebrew. just Google
1: many many techlu parson and get.
0: Yeah, I guess what I'm trying to say is I think that those may have been written as like, uh, nonsense words or or not nonsense words but like, uh, uh unclear. Uh.
1: No, it just means number, numbered, weighed, divided.
0: Ah. Okay yes. yeah it is
1: I thought it, I thought they were literally like it was listing a weight weights and measures but no it means the concept of numbering numbering weighing dividing
0: yes so so that's why it requires interpretation yes. right because it's not like it literally says on the wall god were... has weighed you and found you wanting it yeah, yeah. it it says like it, it, it it's just four words and it requires this you know yeah,
1: yeah, yeah no no that's sorry i just got mixed up a bit but i do remember the inscription uh from i just had not remembered that it was daniel who interpreted it
0: yeah anyway so so um i think this is of interest because you know uh that writing is god telling like a you know an iniquitous ancient king that he is going to strike him down
1: yeah uh, i think that would in fact be why starbuck is very aware that ahab is named after an evil king
0: yes um and uh yeah so i i think you know, um...
1: And he's implying that Ahab is reading it wrong. Like, that's that's straightforwardly there. If Ahab is Belshazzar, then if he says the man seems to read Belshazzar's awful wa- writing, he's saying God is putting a signal here to Ahab which he is not following.
0: Yeah, I think there is even a sense here in which, uh, you know, Starbuck is positioning Ahab as Belshazzar, himself as Daniel, mm. but... Unlike Daniel, whose, like, reaction to this is kind of like, yeah, Belshazzar, fuck you. Like, <laughs> God is going to destroy the Babylonian Empire, which I'm happy about because of, you know...
1: Because you are <laughs> drinking from the vessels looted from the temple.
0: Exactly. Because of, like, your oppression of my people. Um,
1: Thanks, Maccabees. Yeah. Great historical fiction. Really good characters.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, but, uh... We'll but unlike... Unlike... Da- Unlike Daniel, uh, Starbuck is not in a position to, like, uh, gloat in the downfall of his king, right? Like, uh, if the ship goes down, so does Starbuck. Um,
1: Yeah, but I think that he could... Easily be much more vo- like he is not actually serving as Daniel because he is not interpreting this to Belshazzar, he is interpreting this to himself, then going, Ugh, I don't want to think about that.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. Like, it, this is this is a in some sense, this is an opportunity for Starbuck to be like a biblical hero from which he is like shying away.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, like Jonah,
0: <laughs> yeah, he, he
1: is refused in his perspective, he is refusing a call to be a prophet. Yeah, I don't think the coin is actually trying to communicate. That, because I think the coin was put there by Ahab. Well, but, yes. But, you know.
0: But, okay, so that's, that's Starbuck. Um, that's Belshazzar's awful writing. Um, I think that's uh, good for this section. Shall we move on to Stubb?
1: Yeah, I can't think of anything else in Starbuck that's uh, really worth grabbing, other than I really like, he goes below, let me read. I just think it's a good sentence. It's very to the point and effective.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, yeah, so now Stubb, who has noticed both of them looking at the coin and is kind of like, damn, they both seemed pretty depressed on account of that. I wonder what the hell they were looking at. Also,
1: I love that he uses twigging to mean, like, you know, looking at or observing, like, you know, you've twigged to it. I did not realize that came from the 1800s.
0: Yeah. Um, And uh, his kind of perspective on this is, like, they look so sad from looking at a piece of gold, which is a lot of money, and if I had that to spend right now on land, I'd be really happy. Um, uh,
1: Weird. Yes. He's just like, they're both weird. Gold should make you happy, because if you own it, you can spend it.
0: In my poor, insignificant opinion, I regard this as queer. (laughs) Um, Which is just me reading this book. (sighs)
1: Um, He then goes on about all the other, like, kinds of doubloons and other gold coins he's seen, and how none of them have been anything but money.
0: Yeah, yeah. Which, I mean, you know, honestly, fair enough, right? He's just like, listen, there are... All kinds of gold coins minted in South America that I've seen in my years on the sea. And, like, what's so special about this one? Um,
1: What is it that is so killing wonderful?
0: Yes. Uh, So he does decide to go and read it and see if he can determine anything meaningful in it.
1: Yeah, this is definitely also, you know, being stub. It is kind of a comic interlude. And part of the comic interlude is that his interpret when he decides to interpret it, he's like, "I'll get my almanac and like my remembered um, on- and I'll see if like uh, I can summon up devils with arithmetic." And so he's taking the piss out of the entire concept of interpretation.
0: Yeah, he's specifically basically saying, "All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna get a bunch of like reference materials and see if I can use those to interpret this," which is, um, you know, uh, but his reference materials are um, he he refers to. Uh, Bodich he said, that that now is what old Bodich in his epitome calls the zodiac, and what my almanac below calls ditto. So Boditch Bodich's epitome, is um a a book about navigational techniques. Yeah. Um, and you know the almanac is is an almanac. Yep. yep. Uh, and then uh, he also suggests the uh, he also just refers to the concept of. Uh, I'll get the almanac, and as I have heard, devils can be raised with dabble's arithmetic. I'll try my hand at raising a meaning out of these queer curvicues here with the Massachusetts calendar. Uh, and dabble's arithmetic is just, like, a textbook. Uh, yeah. So he's basically saying, like, okay, people can do things with books? Yeah, it's,
1: the, you know, there's these various modes of interpretation, but specifically his modes of interpretation are super, like, practical humdrum every day like you know an arithmetic textbook and a navigational almanac he's not like he's not applying scripture he's not applying you know weird occult knowledge he's not even applying his fevered brain he's just like well encyclopedia says that this is aries the goat
0: (laughs) he knows that aries is the ram
1: i know he knows that aries is the ram the the point is he's being very flat about it on purpose as a bit
0: yes like well, he is very much, I think, uh, mocking the entire idea of like interpreting this. Or um, meaning? Yes. Uh, uh, and even, I think, in a certain way, like, there is a kind of mockery here of like the entire concept of like using uh, allusions to things that you would find in books. To, like draw meaning out of like a physical symbol Which yeah, in some sense yeah. is like making fun of I don't know like 80% of the content <laughs> Of this book
1: Yeah no Stubb is absolutely saying Interpretation And and meaning making through Like language and knowledge are Fundamentally silly And I you know I'm going to strut around Mocking it as a way of uh, Showing that I Stubb am actually the brain Genius here Stubb has a poster soul <laughs>
0: Yeah, and in fact, specifically, you know, uh, he kind of, um... It seems like he kind of looks at the almanac and is like, Okay, the Zodiac. These are the Zodiac signs. But there's not actually anything in this almanac to tell me what that means, so I guess I'm just going to have to make it up.
1: Or just, like, (laughs) assume that these are, you know... He's taking it super physically. Like, here's a ram. Here's a crab. Here's twins.
0: Well, so, I mean, specifically, he says, you know... Uh, he's, he's like gotten to the point of, uh, he's, he's kind of looked up what the Zodiac is and like understood, okay, it's the sun moving through these constellations on the ecliptic. Here's the constellations that those are. Uh, and then he says, book, you lie there. The fact is you books must know your places. You'll do to give us the bare words and facts, but we come in to supply the thoughts. That's my small experience. So far as the Massachusetts calendar and Bowditch's navigator and dabble's arithmetic go, uh, which is, like, uh... Well, you stop
1: before the best two that, sentences. Uh,
0: signs and wonders, eh? Pity if there is nothing wonderful in signs and significant in wonders. Uh, so, yeah, he's just kind of saying, like, that... That there is not actually anything... That all he's getting out of, uh, looking it up in the book is the bare facts. Yeah. Of, like, I mean,
1: what yeah, because the... he looked in a navigation book, and it's just like, here are the signs of the Zodiac. Here are what time of year they'll be present in which, you know, uh... Which parts of the world So that you can use that to Determine your location And your time of year It's a calendar
0: Yes uh, and But he does go on To create his own uh, Kind of Pseudo-philosophical interpretation Of what the Zodiac means
1: Yeah, but I think it's, it's funny Because on the one hand, it's a lot like Ahab's It's, you know, the, the ultimate outcome of this is yeah, life's hard. Lots of stupid shit happens to you. Most of the signs are only present as, and then an animal attacks you.
0: Yeah. So he 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 kind of he goes through the the zodiac in order, you know, starting with Aries and getting through to Pisces, and he just kind of like he's he's presenting it as if these are like the um like the ages of man or something. Yeah. Like this, yeah. Right. Like these are the stages that everyone passes through in life. But he's not really bothering to like. ...make it into that significant of a narrative? It's oh, not mostly, even a little. It's mostly just like, okay, each of these things attacks you... Yeah, it's ...on like your way to the grave.
1: Aries fathers you. Uh, Taurus bumps us the first thing, whatever that means. He just, like, runs into you. There's the twins, which are virtue and vice, but... A- ...the cancer drags you away from virtue, and... Uh, ...there's a lion. Oh, wow. It's an actual lion. Um, and he, you know, gives you some bites... You escape, and then uh, Virgo, oh, the Virgin, you marry and you think yourself happy. Uh, Libra, happiness weighed and found wanting. Which is really interesting, because that's a reference to Belshazzar.
0: Yeah, yeah, it is.
1: And then uh, Scorpio stings you in the rear, uh, and uh, Sagittarius shoots you with arrows, and uh, Capricornus, or the goat, uh, hits you and uh you land into uh Aquarius's water and sleep with the fishes, yeah, it's there's nothing there,
0: yeah, like, except there's... except that as you say his his sort of uh except that he takes something out of it he takes like kind of a moral out of this, which um you know, as you say, it's kind of similar to Ahab's moral of like well, you know, born in storms die in storms, yeah, uh but but he has his his stub spin on it, which is you know uh. There's a sermon now written in high heaven, and the sun goes through it every year, and yet comes out of it all alive and hearty. Uh, so he's basically like, yeah, we do just, like, suffer from birth to grave, and you know what? The sun is happy about it, so I will be too.
1: Yep, yep. Jolly. Jolly jolly is the word like the idea is like oh wow i mean again stub is joker pilled we've discussed this before
0: yeah no 100 this is he's, this is stub like, as usual At, as we've been seeing every man brings what is like in his soul to this coin and sees that reflected back to him
1: yep yep um which oof when we get to flask <laughs> little king post
0: yeah so so the next bit you know stub is like oh here comes flask all right i want to hear what he has to say about this uh let's see what he what his interpretation is and Flask, um, Flask's take.
1: We could just read the whole thing. It's very straightforward. Yeah. Do you want to or should sure, I? Sure,
0: I got it. I see nothing here but a round thing made of gold. And whoever raises a certain whale, this round thing belongs to him. So what's all this staring been about? It is worth $16, that's true. And at two cents the cigar, that's 960 cigars. I won't smoke dirty pipes like Stub, but I like cigars, and here's 960 of them. So here goes Flask aloft to spy him out. And, like, okay, here's the thing. I get what you're saying about how this really shows that Flask has, like, a prosaic quotidian soul. There's nothing in there but 960 cigars. Um, He also, I think, unless I'm misunderstanding the conversion rate here between dollars and cents, I think he got the math wrong because uh, $16 worth of cents, if there's 100 cents to the dollar, which I think there are because the word cent means that,
1: should yeah.
0: be 1630 No, 16, sorry. $16 to 100 cents is 1600 cents. Yes, oh. And then at 2 cents the cigar, that should be 800, 800 cigars. cigars. You're right, I
1: was doing stupid math. Yes, <laughs> sorry. It's hard to do it while also reading a book, but yes.
0: Yeah. Um, You're right,
1: it is 800, it should obviously be 800 cigars. Uh,
0: unless I'm like, I could be getting something wrong about, you know, 19th century doubloons. Um. But it's
1: worth $16, and at two cents, I don't think cents have ever been less than one one-hundredth of a dollar.
0: <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, like, yes, yeah, so this is, this is showing Flask as a very kind of, like, simple person. But on some level, he's also fucking right. That's, uh, that's 960, or possibly 800 cigars <laughs> right there.
1: <laughs> yeah, but here's the thing. Even the other sailors know enough to question whether whoever gets it will be alive to spend it. Yeah. Like, the... This doubloon means a lot more than 800 cigars. It also means the possibility of never getting another cigar again.
0: Well, yes, that is true. Um...
1: I I just think that Flask's Flask's incredible pragmatism here is risible. It's like, on some level, he's like, sure, you can not see anything in it but profit and choose not to care about all this, but these... These dramas, even if they are just all in your captain and first mate's head, are going to define your life. Yeah. You don't get to opt out of that.
0: Yeah, no, yeah, that's fair. Uh, and Stubb's take on it is is that it's it's sort of, because uh, Stubb does comment on this, and, and, and Stubb will kind of continue as he watches yeah. everyone else to comment on their comments on the coin. Um, and uh, Stubb thinks that this is kind of like foolish-wise or wise-foolish.
1: <laughs> yes, if it be really wise, it has a foolish look to it. Yet, if it be really foolish, then has it a sort of wise look to it. And I think that m- my take on this is that Flask isn't wrong that the gold is of value in this way and that you can, you know, think about it pragmatically. But he's only half right because he's ignoring all of these other things.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's a reasonable way of thinking about it. Um,
1: and now we have the Manxman.
0: Yes, and, and this, is, this is a fairly minor character, but he's been mentioned before as someone who has, like, kind of knowledge of the occult. Um, he has,
1: like, folkloric knowledge. Well, okay,
0: yeah, no, he's not, like, a scholar, but, like, he he knows, like, kind of, uh, legends.
1: He knows legends, and he responds, he, like, he's the one who says that Ahab was, like, struck by lightning or possibly born with it. I can't remember which one he specifically put forward. But he claims to have expertise on many things on the basis of, like, strong sentiment and folkloric knowledge and so on. He's very much... He's not, like you say, he's not a scholar, but he is someone people turn to for answers when things get weird.
0: Yes. Um, And uh, he uh, goes and considers an an additional symbol that we haven't mentioned so far, uh, which is that there's a horseshoe nailed on the other side of the mast. Um, And uh, his take um, is that uh, this means that the, the white whale will be raised soon. Um, in a
1: month and a day.
0: Yeah, when the sun stands in one of the zodiac signs depicted on the, on the coin.
1: Yeah, I've studied signs and know their marks. They were taught me two score years ago by the old witch in Copenhagen.
0: Yeah, this is not the first time we've seen the suggestion that, like... Uh, scandinavians are witches oh no
1: this is a this is a standard thing in 19th century english like yeah no i know (laughs) i think i mentioned that dunsany once had a uh like in in a story that's uh called the moon pool i think i may have mentioned it before on this very podcast um scan the scandinavian nurse of a british like couple's child is like the first to has like the Like, is depicted as having an almost, like, exoticized, like, ability to sense the unnatural and, like, understand it instinctively, whereas the civilized Brits don't know what's going on.
0: Yeah, so, so, uh, it will be raised when the sun is in one of the signs depicted on the coin. Uh, which sign will it be? The horseshoe sign, because the horseshoe is on the other side of the mast. And the horseshoe sign is Leo. Um, so, the the white whale will be raised when the sun is in Leo. That's his take.
1: And also, Leo is the roaring and devouring lion. Ship, old ship, my old head shakes to think of thee. So the Manxman, it's interesting, because on the one hand, he's absolutely like, he has witchcraft and strange knowledge. Um, uh, I don't think it's that.
0: What? No, I think, what are you talking about? I was trying to figure out whether there is an actual association between Leo and... And a
1: horseshoe. Yeah, but that was discovered in 2007.
0: Oh, yeah, no, you're right. This has nothing to do with it.
1: I'm just, I'm trying to figure out, because, like... I think he means that, it, like, if you look up Leo, the actual su- shape of the stars...
0: The You think the, the, the Leo constellation looks like a horseshoe?
1: I think that's probably what's going on.
0: No, it totally doesn't, Ben. Leo does not look like a horseshoe at all. Eh, okay. Yeah, so this is something that I'm... Because Power Moby Dick... Cites the lion is the horseshoe sign as Leo, the lion of the horoscope, is represented by a horseshoe But it doesn't, like, link to anything And I don't think that's true
1: uh, I mean, I, sus- I really think it's that something associated with Leo Has a curve to it that is being pro- interpreted as a horseshoe
0: I suppose I
1: Like, I don't think that this is, like completely non-existent because the horseshoe has not been referenced before so i'm certain that melville was drawing in some piece of like lore or information that he's run into that claims that leo is associated with horseshoes because so is to have the horseshoe nailed there so as to communicate leo
0: yeah you might be right and i guess like uh unfortunately uh there there is like a a, a galaxy that has been discovered in Leo that is horseshoe-shaped, so if I Google- In 2007, yes. If I Google Leo horseshoe, that's what I find. Um, so, okay. Uh, I guess I will just have to accept, (sighs) since you tell me that you think it's true, that there is some kind of pre-existing cultural association between Leo and horseshoes.
1: Yeah, I- maybe it's a weird one that Melville ran across and, you know, thought was compelling, but I feel like because anything could be have been nailed to the other side of the mast, any number of things. I think that it is probable that it was chosen to have a particular communication rather than just saying, oh, the makesman can just say Leo's the horseshoe sign. No one's going to check.
0: Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Uh,
1: In any case, the makesman is very much uh, kind of a witch. Like, he's depicted as having these weird knowledges and, you know, sentiments. And we'll see if in the remaining, like, 30 chapters... He is correct. 35 chapters, something like that.
0: Well, I don't think... I mean, okay, we'll see if the book tells us what sign the sun is in when they eventually cite Moby Dick. I would be surprised if... I don't know, maybe that Maybe that will come up because of this.
1: We'll yeah, see. Yeah, that, that is why I was saying I'm going to keep an eye on whether they cite Moby Dick within a month and a day.
0: Yeah, yeah. Because
1: it's probably not going to be the sign that's mentioned, but if he's right about the timing, that's interesting.
0: That's true, but but also... But he like, might not
1: be. I don't remember. Yeah,
0: also just this book hasn't been very specific about time so far. So. No,
1: but if they've mentioned it like that, it might be.
0: That's true. Uh, so the next interpreter is Queequeg. Uh, and we don't actually get to hear Queequeg say anything. Uh, we just see Stubb's description of what Queequeg is doing.
1: Mostly racism. Y- yeah. Like, there's, we really don't get much interpretation of of, Quee- of by Queequeg or even of Stubb, of Kwee because all of his interpretation is basically, ah, oh, he's an idiot cannibal.
0: Yeah, so so what what Kweg is supposedly physically doing is, like, comparing the symbols on the coin to some of his tattoos, um, like, on his thigh. Uh, and, I mean, okay, so, like, Stubb's take on this is like, oh... <laughs> He thinks the sun is in, in the thigh or the calf or the bowels. And he, you know, he thinks the coin is just a button off some king's trousers. Like, he, he doesn't understand the symbolism on the coin or what the coin is. Like, he, he doesn't understand anything. Yeah. Um, which is fair. It's... Or not what do you fair. Mean fair? When I say fair, what I mean is, like, that's the kind of... To say that that's what the book is saying is fair. Like, this is the kind of thing the book has been saying about Queequeg. However...
1: I don't think so, because at no point are the... The tattoos have always been presented as meaning something to Queequeg, but nobody else understands it. So the idea that Queequeg is...
0: when you were like, it's mostly just racism, I thought you were saying the book is just being racist here. No,
1: I mean that Stubb is being racist.
0: Oh, okay. Sorry. Sorry. No,
1: I, I mean that what Stubb is saying is mostly racism. That's his model for interpreting Queequeg.
0: Yes. No, okay. We're on the same page. Sorry. And
1: it's specifically ironic because he's immediately said just before, you know, there's an, about the Manxman. there's another rendering now, but still one text. All sorts of men in one kind of world, you see. And then immediately he sees a different sort of man and says... But he doesn't have any interpretations. He does he has nothing.
0: Yeah. Um but yeah, no, clearly Queequeg is um you know, doing something not entirely dissimilar to what Stubb was doing in that he is like consulting a different text yeah. to illuminate the symbol except that like I think as you say, we have been given the sense by the rest of the story that like Queequeg's tattoos are very meaningful in a way that we are just never going to understand. Yeah,
1: we're not privy to it, but I think what's interesting here is that, yeah, of course Queequeg's going to compare— he's looking at, to him, foreign symbols, or at least, you know, symbols he presumably hasn't had much interaction with. No idea if he's, like, knows European astrology, but Mm -hmm. it's entirely possible that he has— you know, he recognizes star signs or star structures, you know, uh, Polynesian tattoos, it's entirely possible. I don't know for specific, and I don't know what Melville knew for specific, but there's a vast astronomical, uh, and astrological tradition that Melville would have been broadly aware of because he did a whole book about living among Polynesians. So he wouldn't necessarily have known it, but he'd known it existed. Yeah, yeah. And I think has mentioned the idea of navigation by stars and Queequeg previously in the book.
0: Yeah, so so we we don't know what Queequeg is thinking here, but I think we can basically rightfully assume that uh, Stubb is selling it short. Oh, yeah,
1: no. It's, at the very least, Queequeg is looking at someone else's symbolism and being like, hmm, how does this relate to my own? How can I interpret it? He's doing the same thing everyone is doing with his own set of symbols, and the fact that they're sort of physically present on his body does not make them less... know meaningfully symbolic but stub just sees what stub wants to see he dismisses it and to be fair stub has been dismissive of everyone but he's particularly dismissive of queequeg to the point that we don't actually get to see what queequeg is thinking that's frustrating he's stub is in the way
0: yeah i mean i also think that you know uh queequeg doesn't tend to voice his thoughts like at all you know like you've said that ahab has this kind of general reputation as being closed lips but then he has all these soliloquies all the time uh whereas like queequeg just actually in this book generally speaking keeps his yeah queequeg
1: is pretty aphoristic he does have some very good lines but they're relatively few and far between and they're quite curt and i don't i would have liked to get one of those here is the thing i would have liked some gesture towards that and i think that the book is very clear that that exists but stub is pretty much literally physically blocking our way
0: yeah, yeah.
1: Um, what an asshole.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, and and, and uh, the next next interpreter uh, is Fidala, um, who, uh, of course, because Stubb hates him and thinks he's the devil, Stubb is like, oh, he, his tail is coiled out of sight, as He's usable. hiding
1: his hooves by stuffing the toes of his shoes. Like, you know, Stubb is not a reasonable interpreter here, but what he sees is Fidala comes up to the coin, like leans in towards it uh he interprets this as bowing he's like oh yeah he's a he's a fire worshiper he's bowing to the sun on the coin and it's like i don't think that even if he were doing that i don't think it would be any less reasonable than what like half the people looking at this coin have done and secondly i'm reasonably certain that Fidala has some complicated thoughts about this from everything we know about him but Fidala is absolutely silent
0: yeah yeah um yeah, I think that the fire worshiper thing is particularly hilarious because Starbuck previously identified the sun with God, so like yeah,
1: and and the mountains with the Trinity, no less.
0: Yeah, yeah. So you know, I do. Th- I I think uh, you know, uh, Fadala probably more so than anyone on this anyone else on this ship, like is is privy to Ahab's thoughts on this mm-hmm. quest, um, and so like obviously this coin as the, as sort of the coin that represents the quest for Moby Dick Mm -hmm. is, is something of significance to him. Um, something which, you know, he has probably some kind of sense of reverence or at least like importance. Yeah. Yeah. Importance towards. Um, but yeah, we, we, we have no idea what, what that importance really is. Um, Yeah. He's made some kind of gesture towards it, but we don't know what it is at all.
1: Yeah. (sighs) Oh, We we... don't
0: even know what his physical gesture is, let alone not knowing uh, what it means. Yeah, yeah,
1: it's it's described as, ah, only makes a sign to the sign and bows himself. So he does some kind of gesture, but what it is, uh, Stubb cannot interpret, and therefore we don't get to see.
0: Yeah, um... (sighs) And now, uh, the final reader, um is Pip.
1: And this is how we know that this is happening right now, because Pip has had his mind destroyed. His soul has been brought down among the deeps at this point.
0: Yes. Uh, and this is, um, Pip, Stubb tells us, has also been watching this whole thing. Um, uh, so, so, uh, Pip also has, like, this whole chapter in his head at this point. Yep. Um, and, uh, and Stubb kind of starts out by wa- watching him, but After a little while, uh, decides to leave because he's creeped out, basically. Yeah,
1: Stubb has, um, the Stubb's actual line on Pip is, Poor boy, would he had died or I? He's half horrible to me. So, Stubb clearly feels some amount of guilt, at least as much as Stubb is capable of feeling, about the fact that, due to his actions, Pip has been... Changed.
0: Yeah, although it doesn't—guilt is not quite the word I would use. I would just say that he feels a sense of discomfort. Yeah, no,
1: like I say, I i don't think Stubb is actually capable, at least in this, of, like, straightforward moral guilt, but he is absolutely capable of feeling like, I don't like being around Pip. Uh, can you go away? Or can I go away?
0: Yeah. Uh, and, and the—so, uh, the stuff Pip says here, um— so the first thing he he comes up saying is is conjugating the verb look, uh, you know so like I look, you look, he looks, we look, ye look, they look. Which is, I love ye look. Yeah, which is like um, you know, obviously it is kind of uh, it has the vibe of like uh people eerily singing a children's song in a horror <laughs> movie trailer, right? Because this is like this is like a a. a something that children repeat in school. Yes. But it is also obviously a reference to the fact that everyone has been looking at this coin. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um and and so it's it's a uh, it's just, you know, it's it's creepy. It's a it's a response to what's happening, but it's not like a a normal like rational response. Yeah, yeah,
1: it's not the the linkage between sign and interpretation here is Fuzzier and weirder.
0: Yeah. Um and and Stubb just kind of like keeps commenting on it. It's like, oh well he's been studying his grammar, I guess.
1: Um, improving his mind, poor fellow.
0: Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, he repeats it a couple times. And then um he starts kind of saying this like weird stuff about um crows and, and how uh,
1: he's a crow. Yeah,
0: and, and that's kind of an allusion to like like minstrel songs,
1: um, ooh yeah,
0: yeah. Like like black people being presented as crows is like an old yeah. No, crow.
1: you're right. It showed up in Dumbo. Yeah, but, um, no, um, there, and there's but, a number of references to an old minstrel song in this entire section, according to Power Moby Dick.
0: Yeah, uh, but but the uh, there, the uh, this also leads him to saying like, ah, I, I'm a crow, and where's the scarecrow? Uh, and he's kind of like suggesting this like you know creepy bone bony scarecrow figure and stub is like I wonder if he means me um
1: complimentary
0: yeah and 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 i think that in fact uh this is basically pip recognizing like oh there's someone who is like antithetical to me yeah standing by looking at me
1: i mean also this crow scarecrow thing if pip does stay i'm a crow remember that it's he got terrified and jumped out the boat when Stubb was running. It was fear that led to his current situation. Yeah. So if Stubb is the scarecrow, it's that he scared him off, that he got scared off the boat and left to float. So I think that's very straightforwardly saying, ah, there's the one who destroyed me in yes. a certain sense.
0: However, uh, in fact, the one who gets scared off is Stubb. Yep. Uh, I think basically because Stubb realizes that Pip is talking about him, he's like, I, I don't want to be here. His
1: actual line is, I can stand the rest, for they have plain wits, but he's too crazy witty for my sanity, so, so, I leave him muttering. And it's, it's interesting because there's also, um, uh, earlier in this thing, Pip says, are all bats, which in the context of look, what's the association of bats and vision?
0: Right. Blind as a bat. Exactly. Yeah, in fact, yeah, he says, everyone looks... Uh, they are all bats, and I'm a crow, especially when I stand atop of this pine tree here. So actually, he's kind of saying, They're all blind, but I see.
1: Yeah, I think so. And, and, and I mean, straightforwardly.
0: Like, in fact, I think this whole speech of Pips is very interesting because it is, you know, it is presenting him as mad, it is having him like speak in minstrelsy, um, although it's not actually as like horrible eye dialect as some other sections. Yeah. yeah. But um, but I think it is also presenting Pip as actually someone who is very, like, canny in a certain way. Yeah, he's
1: he's a Shakespearean madman.
0: Yes, uh, because, like, yeah, he says this thing... Oh, he's
1: oh, literally the jester. He's like King Lear's jester. What do you have when you have a blind king?
0: Yeah, uh, because he's also, I think, I think this thing where he, like, scares Stub off is very mm-hmm. purposeful. And in specific, I think that he waits to say... The things that are actually his interpretation of the coin Until Stubb has left Like, I think he made Stubb leave So that he could actually think about this Um
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's possible I do think that So this entire chapter is a series of interpretations And modes of interpretation Let's get through Pip first, but I want us to keep in mind That, like, each of these people Is applying not just their own perspective But their own method of exegesis Their own heuristics to uh, their own, um, is heuristic the word I'm looking for?
0: I think heuristic does mean the thing you're trying to say, I guess.
1: Yeah, um, like, but there's also, there's another word for, like, hermeneutic, that's it. Oh. They're each applying their own hermeneutic, their own way of making meaning out of this thing and of reading it, um, that is sort of representative of them, but also they are each sort of, it, there's not two people who have the same approach, let alone the same take.
0: Yes, that's true.
1: And Pip is an interesting one because Pip's hermeneutic is madness.
0: Yes, he's kind of he's kind of free associating ideas here, yes. right? So so he's like, oh, uh, this doubloon is the ship's navel, and everyone's trying to unscrew it. But uh, <laughs> I mean, this is but unscrew your navel, and what's the consequence? And PowerMobyDick.com claims <laughs> the supposed consequence of unscrewing your navel is that your butt falls off.
1: I just assumed it meant that, like, your guts would fall out. Like, you'd opened up your body. But, like, your butt falling off is much funnier.
0: <laughs> yes. Um, but, you know, like, even though this is, like, sort of jokey and weird, like, yeah. the idea of, like, well, if someone does take that doubloon, maybe the consequences will be terrible and will like, destroy this Because it this means ship. that we
1: found the white whale.
0: Like, he's, he's... That's, like, a reasonable point. Yeah, Um, and
1: also, then again, if it stays here, that is ugly, too. For when aught's nailed to the mast, it's a sign that things grow desperate. In reference to nailing a flag to the mast is a way of saying that you will never surrender because you literally can't lower your flag to make the the gesture of surrender in naval combat. Um, And, you know, generally there's an association of nailing things to a mast with, like, last-ditch stands or dreadful storms and so on.
0: Yeah, Uh, and uh, his... Uh, Pip's prediction here is that, um, like, a, like this, like, strange occurrence that he claims happened in, you know, in his home in Tallinn, Tallinn County. County, where, uh, his father cut down a pine tree and found a ring in the middle of it, like a wedding ring that the tree had grown around, he's like, and that's what's gonna happen to this ship. At the resurrection, uh, they're going to find the mast of this ship f- up from the bottom of the ocean with the doubloon still nailed to it, um... And, like, it, it basically, this, this precious gold is going to be taken by the sea very soon.
1: Yes, and with the mast. He's saying that this will all come to disaster. Yes. And he also, you know, says, uh, Oh, the gold, the precious, precious gold, the green miser will hoard ye soon. In reference to, like, bedded o- oysters or possibly the ocean itself. Uh, like, um, he, he references bedded oysters growing over the gold. Like, that this gold coin as incorruptible as it is, because remember, it doesn't it doesn't rust or tarnish, will remain incorruptible at the depths of the sea indefinitely.
0: Yes, yeah. Um, and,
1: uh... God, he's also got that very weird line about God.
0: Yeah, hish, hish. God goes among the worlds blackberrying, uh, which Power Moby Dick suggests means, like, collecting souls like blackberries. Okay, that,
1: that's definitely a bit of a stretch. Definitely it's... Like blackberrying is going and collecting blackberries, but the idea that specifically souls is very.
0: Well, I think that it's probably intentional that, like, I think blackberries are like black people, mm-hmm. right? Because this this whole paragraph has been using like kind of uh, you know racist ideas of like what black people are. <laughs> um, yeah,
1: yeah, no, it's there's there is some racism in Pip.
0: And and there's also been this idea of the resurrection, so I think the idea mm. of like God collecting the souls of the world is also part of. Yeah, yeah. Also, Among
1: the Worlds is a wild...
0: Yeah! I was also thinking about that! There's more than one world! To Pip. Pip, what do you know?
1: (laughs) I mean, Pip saw the many-legged coral insects, you know, which set up the lights and, uh, God's foot on the treadle of the loom, and for this they called him mad, so, uh, he knows a lot of things. Some of them may even be true. (sighs) Yeah. So, yeah, uh, also he says, Ha ha, old Ahab, the white whale, he'll nail ye. Yes. So, Pip is definitely prophesying doom.
0: Yep, yep, 100%. That's very straightforwardly.
1: Saying. And, like, yeah, Pip is very, very much mad in the style of, like, you know, uh, Cassandra. Or, like, other, you know, other frames of uh, wisdom that is also madness.
0: Yes, he is, so, is literally mad.
1: Yes, that is definitely the case. He's also mad in the sense that he's making... Tons of connections that aren't necessarily Usefully present in the text The gold doubloon is just like A thing that reminds him of a chain of associations Like you said
0: Yeah, he is not in any way looking at the uh, The engravings on this coin Those are totally irrelevant to him Um.
1: Yeah, even the coin itself barely functions It's really much more about like Oh, everyone cares about this Oh, it's it's at the center of the ship Oh, you know, everyone's looking at it But they can't see it he's not seeing it either
0: yeah yeah I mean that's that's true but I also think yeah, yeah. you know and I I do think that uh you know we'll see whether pip is right oh yeah no right I'm not,
1: I am not saying that pip is necessarily wrong what I'm saying is that I don't think I don't think we are meant to just be like ah pip knows more than he's letting on no pip is. Pip's mind is wide open. To, to quote something from a game I enjoyed, it's like, he's like a, um... His magnetic sensor has been straight onto the tape of reality. Sure. He has, he has no... Like, and this is... The reason I'm bringing this up is that it's about, like, modes of interpretation. Pip has no uh, discretion in how he interprets. He just... Can't, there's a flood of ideas and associations, and he just sort of grabs onto them, mixed in with, you know, the minstrel stuff which i'm sure is meant to be basically like chaff the minstrel references are meant to be to some extent just pip being black like it's it's they're there because pip is there but they don't mean anything about the current situation but then they get blended into things that have meaning because pip's interpretation is in some sense broken but also wide open
0: yeah yeah
1: and then it's interesting to look at like Ahab's interpretation is almost hermetically sealed around Ahab. He's a monomaniac. His hermeneutic is that everything comes back to Ahab because everything in his world is about his quest. And to some extent, he's made the world around him like that on the Pequod. Um, And then Starbuck's hermeneutic is allegorical. It's everything is, and it's almost medieval. Medieval Christian hermeneutics often held that, yes, everything about nature and the world is fundamentally religious- doctrine everything it or not doctrine but like everything is didactic you look at the you know the pelican which supposedly feeds its young with its own blood and that's a a living allegory for mary or for compassion all this hermeneutic is overinterpretive in a different way than ahab's everything's allegorical then you have stub whose hermeneutic is that uh this is all stupid, and, like, it's venal. It's just seeing his own personal experiences, which are, yeah, you get knocked around, but sometimes you get good things, so, uh, who cares? Right. Um, it's... And then Flasks, obviously, is ultimately pragmatic and flat. Queequegs is not accessible. The Manxes is superstitious. These are all different hermeneutics in sort of, to some extent, decreasing degree of, like, elaboration and, spe- and specialization, except for Stubbs, which is both flat and goes on forever yeah and then there's pip who is sort of ultra interpretive hyper interpretive uh the world has broken through into pip
0: yeah yeah uh and of course ishmael ishmael's role is to tell us what the coin is like physically and what Mm -hmm. it sort of means as like historically yeah historically um and then also to present everyone else's interpretation. Yes,
1: Ishmael does not directly interpret the coin, uh, or at least he tries not to. Like, Ish- I
0: think the only the only thing in this chapter that could be described as an interpretation of the coin, that well, I guess there are two things that I would look at okay. and say these could be considered interpretations mm-hmm. of the coin, and they're in narration. Um, those are, first of all, the... Uh, well, if the coin means nothing, then the world means nothing. That yes.
1: part, like the the dedication to the coin, must have some kind of symbolic meaning. There must be something there. I think that is genuinely Ishmael's position.
0: Yeah, yeah, but I think that I think that Ishmael is Ishmael's role here is first of all to present the kind of like. Uh, extreme possibility of no meaning yes he presents that even though i don't think it's what he believes it, it, mm-hmm. in fact he's presenting it to assert the opposite does yeah, it some yeah. certain significance this
1: cannot be true therefore there must be some kind of truth
0: and then his other interpretation i think is the uh the kind of beauty and glory of the coin mm. as being like poetic and 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 just just having
1: having its own aesthetic like value
0: Yes. And and yeah, I, think I think that is right. kind of like the other extreme where it's just like the coin has meaning. It has added preciousness and enhancing glories because of the images on it. But what are those images? What do they mean? There's no attempt to say that. Yeah,
1: there to some extent Ishmael <sighs> Ishmael is once again really just like, "Oh my god, that's so pretty." Like Ishmael is taken with things. And I think that that's his his interpretation is kind of Equinanimous He accepts that everything has meaning and he'll even try to present those meanings to you. But he himself his interpretation is just sort of it's it's panpsychism. It's it's all accepting in some ways. It's also, you know, kind of helpless. He's going to be pulled around by these other people and sort of go along with things.
0: Yeah, yeah. <sighs>
1: Good chapter.
0: Yeah, good chapter.
1: Uh, Yeah, so I'm I'm trying to think if there's anything else I want to touch on before we go on to another really good chapter. I know I say that all the chapters are really good. I know.
0: (laughs) (sighs) I wasn't going to say it this time.
1: But... Yeah, no. I think I think we are basically done with the doubloon. We have we have interpreted it intensely. We have raked it over like the the golden sands of Quito.
0: Yeah, much much like everyone on the ship is just like hot on this doubloon because they want to get the money. You and I, like this chapter, is just like uh, catnip for you and me. Oh
1: yeah. I mean, I haven't even brought this up, and this is entirely just for us. But there's also a coin that may or may not be symbolic in the Book of the New Sun.
0: Oh my God. The- Ben, you can't.
1: Uh, Anyways, that, moving, that moving on. That podcast
0: is is not yet to be <laughs> spoken of.
1: But by the bright light of the new sun, it casts shadows into the past. Ben, shh! <laughs> this has been entirely self-indulgent, and I'm very sorry, listeners. Let's move on to Chapter 100, Leg and Arm. The Pequod of Nantucket meets the Samuel Enderby of London.
0: Yes, so... Uh, like
1: all good chapters, it begins with...
0: Ship ahoy, hast seen the white whale?
1: <sighs> so yeah, I'm it, always asking people this.
0: Yeah, this is another another meeting of the Pequod with another ship, and obviously Ahab greets them as he greets every single Technically, ship.
1: Technically, this one is a gam, but it's a very short one.
0: Yes, uh, and uh, this, this ship is an English whaler, and in fact, uh, the, the captain's response to hast seen the white whale is, uh, see you this? And withdrawing it from the fold that had hidden it, he held up a white arm of sperm whale bone, terminating in a wooden head like a mallet. So and he's basically like, have I seen the white whale? Look at this, buddy. Yes, and I have.
1: Ahab, by the way, at the time, Ahab is standing in his hoisted quarter boat. So like like he often does, he's just up in his personal whale boat that can then be lowered immediately. And he's like, hanging, his his peg leg is plainly visible. So, uh, so the other guy sees it then says, have I, holds up his, and Ahab's immediate response is, man my boat, stand by to lower. Just like, <laughs> I'm going over there. I'm not saying anything to him. I'm not talking to any of you. We're just going there.
0: Yeah, it, it, very clearly, these two men have like an instant connection. Like, they're, oh, uh, yes. their eyes meet in like lightning flashes. Yeah,
1: has seen the white whale? Yeah, buddy. Holy shit, I'm over there. <laughs> <sighs> so,
0: finally, Ahab makes a friend.
1: Well, <laughs> let's continue forward. i'm not I'm not prepared to impute friendship to Ahab just yet, but um, especially because the next thing that happens is just tragic,
0: yeah. so so it turns out that Ahab, in his uh, rush to get to the other boat, has kind of forgotten that um he's been. Uh, you know, getting in and out of the Pequod by means of some sort of contraption.
1: He's got some kind of lift, basically. They've got... They don't specify, but it's almost certainly basically like a swing, right? Yeah, I think actually... He sits on it and it rises. I think it
0: might have been mentioned earlier in the book and described as a kind of swing. Yeah. Anyway, the point being... Because of his ivory leg, Ahab can't very easily climb, like, a ship's ladder.
1: I think basically impossibly, because his, uh, his ivory leg's from, like, above the knee. Yeah, so which he Which means can't... He, he has a straight leg. He can't bend it, which means he... That would be completely useless on a ladder. He'd have to, like, hop cleat by cleat.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, um... So he gets to the other ship and realizes that he's not going to be able to easily get up with their ship's ladder. Yeah, and
1: Ishmael does take a moment to remind us that now it is no very easy matter for anybody, except for those who are almost hourly used to it, like whalemen, to clamber up a ship's side from a boat on the open sea. So his thing where it's like, no, no, this is actually, this is quite difficult, and obviously with uh, peg leg you just can't, but he has to have that moment to say, except whalemen, who are super cool, and I'm assuming the the spirit of Ahab is just like,
0: Yeah, so poor Ahab is now... Ahab now found himself abjectly reduced to a clumsy landsman again, and he ends up getting hoisted up on one of the blubber hooks.
1: Yeah, this is a this is a thing that gets said a number of times that Ahab is like reduced to a land reduced to a landsman by his uh by the loss of his leg. Like that's to some extent, the way this book communicates, he has been like dismasted, unmanned, destroyed, is he is made into A person such as might be reading this boat. He is no longer a whaleman, which is the most exalted of states, despite being a king among whalemen.
0: You said boat for book again. Person who might be reading this boat.
1: Ugh! Fine. Let's just move forward.
0: (laughs) Anyway, so um, Ahab uh, gets up onto the ship. um, And uh, this is just so cute. With his ivory arm frankly thrust forth in welcome, the other captain advanced, and Ahab, putting out his ivory leg and crossing the ivory arm, like two swordfish blades, cried out in his walrus way, Aye, aye, hearty! let us shake bones together, an arm and a leg, an arm that never can shrink, do you see, and a leg that never can run. Where didst thou see the white whale? How long ago?
1: Yeah, I, I want to point out that he's, like, standing on the capstan, so he's, like, visible above everyone, and, like, lowering down his, like, putting out his leg to this. So it's not like he's standing on the deck, raising his leg like a high kick.
0: Yeah, no. I just want to put that out there. He's on the capstan, yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah, and, and I, yeah, and he's so excited.
0: And I love, I love what he says specifically, an arm that never can shrink, do you see, and a leg that never can run, because he's kind of saying, you know, that these are worse, in some sense, than, than flesh limbs, mm-hmm. right? Like, the arm can never... Uh, well, okay, actually, no, well, never can shrink literally means, like, it's made up it's never going to become smaller. See, and the legs- that's
1: not what I took at all. I took it as shrink in the sense of, like, recoil or hold back.
0: Well, so that's what I, th- that's what I mean. He is referring to both the mm. physical qualities where, like, literally these are different from flesh limbs, but also he's kind of saying these make us bolder than other men. Yes, these- We can't shrink and we can't run-
1: away yeah no that's definitely clear he's definitely communicating these limbs mean that we are set on our purpose we're not like if you have this kind of limb your arm can't betray you nor your leg and remember how much of ahab is defined by his body his like the parts of him being lesser than his mind yes and the cap the the english captain uh is like Ah, the white whale There I saw him On the line last season So almost the same time When uh, Ahab Was uh, Dismasted
0: Yeah, so this is uh, This is just like Much as uh, The last chapter Was to Ben and me This story is to Ahab This is exactly What he wants to hear Yes, Um, yes and And
1: he's like Excitedly asking Tell me how it happened
0: Yeah, so it turns out
1: Spin me the yarn.
0: As you would expect from the way he was brandishing it, this English captain did, in fact, lose his arm to Moby Dick, just as Ahab lost his leg.
1: Yeah, do we want to describe the scene that it happened in?
0: Yeah, we should We should tell this Englishman's story. Yeah. Um. So, he explains that he encountered Moby Dick the first time he was ever cruising on the line, and he didn't know, he was ignorant of the white whale, so he did not know the myth of Moby Dick.
1: Which also, within the context of the story, basically means that he was a relatively new whaleman.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, so they, they lowered for some whales, um, they made fast to one of them, uh, and then Moby Dick shows up, um, and, uh, at the mention of Moby Dick, Ahab just can't restrain himself, um, let's do this as a dialogue, I'll do the English captain, presently up breaches from the bottom of the sea a bouncing great whale with a milky white head and hump, all crow's feet and wrinkles,
1: it was he, it was he! And cried Ahab, suddenly letting out his suspended breath. So he was literally like, It's a, it's, it's Moby Dick! <laughs> Me when Moby Dick is on screen. It's Moby Dick.
0: <laughs> and harpoons sticking in near his starboard. Finish. Aye, aye,
1: they were mine. My irons. B- but on...
0: Give me a chance then. <laughs> so yeah, it's literally... Ahab is so excited to talk about how the harpoons stuck in Moby Dick are his harpoons that he won't even let the Englishman talk about how he encountered yeah,
1: he, Moby Dick. He's so incredibly... He's like, oh my god, here is someone who can actually understand me. Here is a person who has gone through the same thing I have gone through, which is the impossible monstrosity of the white whale.
0: Yes, uh, and, and uh, the, the captain... Says that uh, Moby Dick was like Snapping at the line that was fast To the other whale and Ahab's like ah yeah He was trying to free the other whale I know about That um, and uh, that This is I think the first indication That maybe uh, this Captain and Ahab are not quite as simpatico as they seem because He says how it Was exactly I do not know which I
1: think he's saying well I, I Don't know if, uh, if Moby Dick was really Trying to free the other whale Yeah like Maybe, you know, whales do things.
0: Yeah, yeah. So he's not straight up saying, Ahab, you're full of shit. This whale doesn't know things like that. But he is kind of saying, like, okay, sure. He's not immediately being like, yes, that's right. He has a malevolent intelligence.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
0: Um, anyhow, the, the line gets, like, tangled in Moby Dick's teeth so that when they pull on the line, they don't come up to the other whale. They come up close to Moby Dick and the other whale gets away, um... But they're kind of, uh, you know, the captain's decision at this point is like, well, here's a huge whale. Maybe I'll capture this one.
1: spite of the boiling rage he seemed to be in. Yes. So, you know, okay, this is a huge and dangerous whale, but you know what? I'm going to shoot my shot.
0: Yes. And uh, he decides, you know, he's, he's a little concerned that the, um, the line that they have, you know, that's just attached to Moby Dick by being tangled around his tooth. It's not harpooned into him. He's worried that it's going to get loose or that the tooth might be pulled out. Which is an occasion to, to um, brag a little bit. Yeah. The tooth it was tangled to might draw, for I have a devil of a boat's crew for a pull on a whale line. Like, they might just pull so hard that the tooth comes right out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, so he jumps into a, a nearby uh, mate's boat and uh, snatches up the harpoon and attacks Moby Dick.
1: I want to note the you immediately see the relationship between uh, him and his mates is somewhat different from... Uh... Ahabs Ahab. with his. He's like, you know, Mr. Mounttop's here. By the way, Captain Mounttop, Mounttop the captain. As I was saying. So he takes a moment to be like jovial and introduce his mate while talking about the incident that lost him an arm.
0: Yeah. No, I I think this captain is kind of a charming. Yeah, guy. no he is. Uh so um so you know, he 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 darts the harpoon, uh but then in the next instant, uh Moby Dick like sort of um like not What's the word I'm looking for? Like, sends up a wave of foam with his tail, um, blinding them.
1: Yeah, he strikes from below. And yes. then strikes from above, the tail coming down and smashing the boat apart.
0: Yes, uh, and, uh, then he, like, Moby Dick, like, swims backwards through the destroyed boat, and so they, everyone has to, like, scatter and swim away. Um, and, uh... This is uh this is when the captain suffers his injury because well not he... quite
1: first he sees the harpoon pole sticking out of Moby Dick and grabs onto it so he rides Moby Dick for like ten seconds
0: yeah he grabs his own harpoon that is stuck in Moby Dick uh and um... that is
1: washed off by a wave basically. yes
0: well well uh yeah so he's the the sea washes him off he's not able to hold on to the harpoon and Moby Dick dives which causes the second harpoon which is kind of like in. An...
1: On the line, as previously described. Yeah,
0: we've we've heard before about how, like, the harpoons are kind of attached to the same line, and so you can have, like, a harpoon, like...
1: Bouncing around when the line is drawn out. So once you get the line in, you're supposed to throw the other harpoon into the water so that it can't get at anyone, uh, which he failed to do first because the boat was destroyed before he could. And, and now, now he's
0: in the water. And, all right, I want to just give, like, a, a brief content warning because this injury is gruesome.
1: Oh, yeah, no, it's it's... I, every time I think, I'm just like, ooh, oh, Yeah, wow. so
0: so skip forward maybe, uh, I don't know, 30 seconds, a minute. Maybe when I edit this, I'll tell you how far to skip forward, but... Yep. Hey, I'm just uh, coming in to let you know that we talked about the arm injury for about 45 seconds. Um, I will put the exact timestamp in the episode description if you want to be precise about it, but if you skip ahead 45 seconds... From the end of this, you should be good. So you can skip ahead, starting now. Uh, so what happens to him is that the second harpoon lodges in his shoulder, um, and th- and it, like, pulls, pulls him down. down as Moby Dick is diving. And the only reason he escapes being, like, drowned is that the-, the harpoon's barb...
1: Is sharp enough and it just cuts along his entire arm.
0: Yeah, it, like, tears through his whole arm and out of him so that he's left with a really horrible wound all, all the, the way w- down his arm all yeah. the way down his arm but he doesn't drown he's able to float
1: yeah um, so his arm is now mangled but he is alive and in the water and this is where presumably people can come Yeah back yeah in.
0: that's yeah and at this point he uh, he throws the story to the ship's surgeon bunger uh, Dr. Bunger.
1: By the way, Captain Dr. Bunger, ship surgeon. Bunger, my lad, the captain.
0: <laughs> yeah, um, and it, this bit, this kind of leads into a, basically, like, banter between Bunger yeah, and the, yeah, and the captain. Yeah, yeah, they have a lot of banter. Um,
1: This is also where we learn that his name is Captain Boomer.
0: Yes. the the.
1: Okay, Captain. It,
0: it's very funny that, like, he's been introducing us to other people, but it takes someone else to introduce him to us. Yes. Uh, I also
1: just find the name Captain, like, the names of these characters are boomer and bunger and they're a comic duo
0: yeah no absolutely these are like these are like dickens character names yes um anyway so
1: so and they're english yes
0: uh so so the the ship's doctor ship surgeon appears and he i think there's a certain suggestion that he's not that much of a surgeon because uh There's nothing about him to, like, indicate that he's a doctor, visually speaking.
1: Yeah, he's, um... But he is holding a pillbox and is looking at the two uh, ivory limbs being like, Hmm, are they well designed and, like, holding a marlin spike for comparison? And he's also very, uh, like... He's described as having a round face but an exceedingly sober one. Yeah. Um, He's very, you know... He's not necessarily dressed up like a doctor, but he's very like somber and serious looking, which helps with the banter.
0: Yeah, the kind of the the the, the comic duo arrangement here is that the uh, the surgeon is like you know straight faced, and then uh, the captain makes fun of him. Yes, like
1: um, you know. Um, we went up northward to get off of the hot weather, you know, presumably so the wound won't uh, go septic as quickly. Um, and, you know, I did all I could. I sat up with him all night. I was very strict with him in his diet. The captain goes, ha yeah, strict. You may, you know, you insisted we both drink all night. That's when you were staying up with me all night. And then was barely sober enough to get the bandages on.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: and, you know. Uh,
0: and, and the surgeon's response to that is like, ah, yes, he's being facetious. I don't drink at all.
1: Yes And then the captain's like He doesn't drink water at all Puts him in hydrophobia No, no Only booze
0: (laughs) Yeah So, um So, uh, also at this point We're told that the name of the ship Is the Samuel Enderby Just as a a side note Uh, anyway, so, um
1: Because again, Ahab just took off Before finding that out
0: Yes (laughs) So, um
1: The wound becomes septic Like, really septic And the arm has to be amputated
0: Yes Um, so they amputate the arm and the surgeon is is uh, careful to uh, disavow responsibility for the ivory arm.
1: That thing is against all rule. That is the captain's work, not mine. He ordered the carpenter to make it. He had that club hanger hammer there put on the end to knock someone's brains out with, I suppose, as he tried mine once. He flies into diabolical passion sometimes. Do you see this dent, sir? And he takes off his hat and he has this, like, little bowl-shaped dent in his skull that Ishmael notes... Doesn't, like, have any signs of being a wound. It's just this perfect little dent. And, uh, you know, well, the captain there will tell you how that came here. He knows.
0: And the captain insists he was born with it. Yeah, so- the ca- he,
1: which is strongly implied by the it's not a wound. The captain's like, oh, you rascal. And this is where we realize that, like, the dynamic here is, in fact, that, yeah, the doctor's kind of a rascal. He's spitting some stories yeah, to make just... it part. It's obvious that this captain doesn't fly into rages. He's not Ahab.
0: Yeah, no. It's just that he is, uh, the the, the surgeon's role is to be, like, the straight-laced one. But he's also, like, telling tales.
1: Yeah, he's telling, st- he's telling tales to get the reactions from the captain because they're clearly buddies. And the captain's pretty okay with the missing arm. He's gotten used to it already.
0: Yeah, um...
1: Uh, also, it's it, described as this byplay between the two Englishmen because Ahab is done with it.
0: Yeah, Ahab has no interest in this comedy routine. And he's like, okay, the white whale, please.
1: What became of the white whale? Uh, oh. and,
0: uh, and the captain's like, oh, right. Well, uh, he swam off. <laughs> um, and, and they didn't see him for some time after that, but they did eventually. So, you know, they, they came back to the wine and they heard about Moby Dick and realized, ah, that was who attacked us.
1: Yep, yep. And and they,
0: and, they, and they they encountered the whale again twice after that. And Ahab's response is but could not fasten.
1: As in well, he says but could not fasten so it perfectly it's like oh, so you you couldn't get a harpoon in him. And uh Captain Boomer says, didn't want to try to. Ain't one limb enough? What should I do without this other arm? And I'm thinking Moby Dick doesn't bite so much as he swallows.
0: Yeah, I mean like I don't I can't blame him
1: in the slightest for You know, he's like, yeah, Going after the white whale lost me an arm. I'm good.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: and, but that's the opposite of, of Ahab in so many ways. Like, like
0: Ahab, it, it does not even occur to Ahab that someone would, if they saw the white whale, choose not to pursue.
1: Someone with this vendetta, with this injury that has been done to him, with the destruction of part of his body. It's not just like, like someone who doesn't go after the white whale generally ahab is like you know maybe it's a bit cowardly but someone who has had a limb chopped off by the white whale with its terrible crooked jaw that person should be furious that person should want nothing other than revenge and in fact what happens next is bunger goes into a sort of joking thing about hey well look you know, uh, whales can't actually digest human bodies. So, um, you know, if you were willing to sacrifice your other arm, you could definitely get the first one back and give it a decent burial. And, like, you know, this is clearly sort of a joke about how stupid of an idea it would be to go after the white whale. And he's, like, spinning out this whole thing as, you know, obviously he's sort of switched sides and now he's being the silly one and Captain Boomer's being the sensible one.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, uh, he makes this, like, absurd claim about, uh, someone, uh, Swallowing a, a knife
1: Specifically um, an old patient of his in Ceylon Who was an old juggling fellow Who would fake knife swallowing But occasionally one would just drop down there And then he'd vomit up tacks much later Because he couldn't digest the whole thing <laughs>
0: Yes um, Anyway uh, So you know um, Basically yeah uh, Boomer concludes Like yeah I'm, I'm not going to bother Do you want to
1: read this section? Because I think this this exchange between Ahab and Boomer is important
0: Yeah sure No, thank ye, Bunker, said the English captain. He's welcome to the arm he has, since I can't help it, and didn't know him then, but not to another one. No more white whales for me. I've lowered for him once, and that has satisfied me. There would be great glory in killing him, I know that. And there is a shipload of precious sperm in him, but hark ye, he's best let alone. Don't you think so, captain? Glancing at the ivory leg.
1: He is, but he will still be hunted for all that. What is best, let alone that accursed thing, is not always that least allures. He's all a magnet. How long since thou sawst him last? Which way heading?
0: Yeah, so they they both basically presume that the other one is going to have the same reaction that he Like- Boomer is like, you lost a limb to the white whale, why are you still pursuing him? And Ahab is like, you lost a limb to the white whale, why aren't you pursuing him? Yes,
1: and I really like Bunger's response, like, because Ahab's, like, manner is not really described in this section, it's just, like, what he's saying, and then Bunger reacts with, bless my soul and curse the foul fiends, uh, cried Bunger, stoopingly walking around Ahab and like a dog, strangely snuffing. "'This man's blood. Bring the thermometer. "'It's at the boiling point. His pulse makes these planks beat. "'Sir,' taking a lancet from his pocket and drawing near to Ahab's arm." So he literally, like, pulls out a little knife, and he's like, "'I need to get some blood. You're, like, not natural.'" (laughs) Yeah.
0: Uh, and, uh, that that pisses Ahab off. Uh, Unsurprisingly. Yeah, like,
1: let, let me take some of your blood. And Ahab's response is, "'Avast!' and, like, hurls the man against the bulkhead. Like, he just smacks him." Man the boat! Which way heading? And the captain's like, holy shit, what is going on?
0: Yeah, um... Yeah, and, and, and... Yeah, at this point, yeah. Man the boat. Ahab is just going to leave as soon as yeah, he, gets, as soon his as he knowledge knowledge gets his information. Yeah, as soon as he gets his information. Yeah, um, and,
1: uh, you He's, know. I gotta say, um... And, uh... Ahab basically just swings off the boat on the cutting tackle himself and, you know, Boomer turns to Fadala who obviously being Ahab's uh, you know, uh, oar's uh, harpooner yeah. um, is with him on the boat and he's like, is your captain crazy? And Fadala just like puts his finger to his lips like, I won't tell if you won't.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um.
1: And, uh, A- and Fadala slides over the bulwarks to uh, grab the steering oar. Ahab swings himself down and the two of them immediately, uh, are, you know, command them to be lowered, and they're just gone.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and as- as they're leaving, Boomer is hailing them, trying to be like, hey, hey, wait a minute, what happened? But, uh, Ahab just ignores that.
1: Yeah, with back to the stranger ship, and face set like a flint to his own, Ahab stood upright till alongside of the Pequod. And I think that stand upright is important, because it's been mentioned how incredibly difficult it is to stand, um,
0: in, in a- in a- in a, a whaleboat In a whale yeah. boat,
1: exactly. And to stay, uh, to stay upright. And the captain isn't supposed to hold anything. And this is one of the ways in which Ahab has been sort of, again, unmanned and dismasted and made less by his injury in the way the whalemen are constructed is that he can't, or at least he finds it difficult to perform this feat that a captain is supposed to do, but here he's managing it for the entire trip, bolt upright, no no mention of how he's supporting himself, basically just rigidly supported by his own pride and vendetta yeah. um, all the way back because, and to be fair, he also has like a notch on this boat, so it's, it's easier than it could be, but 100%, Ahab is just deeply affronted by the failure of spirit that he's seeing in Captain Boomer
0: yeah now I will say I think that it's uh I do think that it's interesting to look at what Ahab actually says about how he is going to hunt Moby Dick because yeah, it's, yeah it's not really like he says like
1: you're a coward you're
0: a coward you should be hunting the white whale when when Boomer says he's best let alone don't you think so captain Ahab's response is he is but he will still be hunted for all that. So he's basically saying, like, yeah, you're right. It is not, like, I mean, sensible. It would be better if I left the white whale alone, but I'm not going to do that.
1: Yeah, I mean, Ahab oscillates between the white whale being destroyed is the most important thing in the world, and I mu- and I will succeed, and this is definitely going to destroy me, but it's still the most important thing in the world to him. Like, when he says, you know, best let alone, he's recognizing that there is a logic, which supplies that it's clearly one boomer fault. Because remember, boomer is like kind of laid back. He has friendly relations with his uh, mates and his surgeon. He's he's kind of jolly, mm-hmm. and that's not Ahab at all because Ahab is driven. The things that drive Ahab are not like safety and profit. There's a principle there, a you know madness-maddened principle, being Ahab. But I think that on some level, when though he says yes, he's best. Let alone, he's. It's, it's part of that thing where he admits it is wrong or somehow evil in his quest to hunt the white whale. But at the same time, he belie- he's, you know, he's going up against God and he's willing to argue his own case.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I think there's almost a suggestion in the way that Ahab talks about it here. That it is... That Ahab is pursuing Moby Dick almost, like, against his own will. Or at least certainly against his better judgment. Certainly
1: against his soul and body.
0: Yeah, like, you know, he says what is best let alone that accursed thing is not always what least allures he's all a magnet uh so like in 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 the same way you know with the same metaphor Mm -hmm. which has been previously used to talk about ahab's hold over his crew
1: and uh, particularly starbuck
0: yes um moby dick as a magnet has that same kind of hold on Mm -hmm. ahab yeah um so yeah i just i think that's interesting um He is not, like, making the decision to pursue the white whale. He is allured. He is attracted as by a magnet.
1: Yeah. No, I I think it is true that Ahab is to some extent expressing that he has no choice but to hunt the white whale. He is drawn to it, and he can recognize the arguments for why it might not be a good idea. But at the same time, his will is absolute. His monomania is unbending. And to some extent, I think that, uh... I think he's just so upset that this person he thought could understand the core of his being can't, even a little bit. Yeah. Like, uh, I did... Uh, I I have, you know, heard people say that this is, like, one of their favorite bits of the book. That, like, this moment when Ahab, whose monomaniacal quest defines this narrative, runs into a guy who's just like, Yeah, same thing happened to me, but, um... Didn't really fuck me up. I just, I underwent some horrible trauma and then decided to not spend my life obsessing about it. And like, Ahab's just like, what is wrong with you?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think there is something very interesting in this where it kind of points out or like suggests that like, Ahab didn't have to be this way. Yeah. It's not really fate. It's not really like, an ineluctable consequence of what happened to him,
1: you know? But at the same time, there's a certain element of like, well, do you just have to accept it then? Do you just make jokes about how your arm was horribly mangled and, like, you you boozed your way around to deal with the pain for a while? Like, do you just just let the world do that to you? And, you know, on some level, the answer is yes! Rather than being eaten by a whale more!
0: Right, like, yeah, I, I... I- I mean, I I think, you know, it's a a fascinating way of, like, illuminating Ahab's character and Ahab's history.
1: Yeah. It's the idea that you could go through basically the same thing as Ahab, but maybe, you know, maybe it's just that Boomer had a friend with him on the way back, and that prevented it from sinking in so deep. Or maybe Ahab was never capable of having a friend or being jolly that way. He was always a dour old Quaker— Or maybe it's just that, you know, it's entirely random who, uh, you know, how one responds to this kind of, you know, personality-redefining trauma. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating, and it's, it's this whole open door into another book or another way of being for Ahab that, I mean, frankly, would be a much more boring book, but, uh, is just fascinating to intersect with.
0: Something just occurred to me. So, there's this discussion that Bunger has about how, like, oh well, the whale can't digest a man's arm. So. Yeah, but um, Moby Dick didn't actually like sever Boomer's arm. He like severely injured it. Oh
1: wow, you're totally and right. Then, they and then Bunker
0: amputated it later. So like, there is almost a suggestion that Moby Dick followed them and ate the arm.
1: <laughs> Yeah, but I think the actual suggestion here is that Bunger's just being a little shit. Like, he's entirely joking around. And really, that, frankly, that joke only makes sense if you're thinking in terms of Ahab. Yes. If you're like, thinking, because Ahab, it's very much, it took my leg. Like, the, the leg is gone, strongly implied to have been swallowed. And so there's this idea of, like, okay, who you're, who are you talking to here? You're actually talking to Ahab, but you don't seem to realize it. And, you know, that's. That's an interesting little trick on the author's part, because I did not see that at all either time I read this.
0: Yeah, yeah. (sighs) Fascinating story. Yeah,
1: and and similarly, it's also interesting that Boomer, Boomer sees glory in killing the whale and profit. You know, things that other people will recognize you for. Ahab, it's entirely internal. Ahab wants revenge. Ultimately, I'm pretty sure that if Ahab died killing the white whale, he would consider that a victory, even if nobody else ever knew about it.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it's also like, um, you know, the, the glory of killing Moby Dick and the profit of taking all the sperm inside of him is something that would be available to anyone who could successfully hunt Moby Dick. You yes. Know? Those are not... Those are not revenge. Those are not things that Boomer would specifically be able to pursue because of the loss of his arm. You know? Yeah,
1: they're, they have no particular meaning to Boomer. He's just like, well, yeah, it's a really big whale and it's a storied one. It's clearly a very dangerous one. So obviously there's upsides to killing one, but the cost is just too great. And Ahab's like, killing the whale is the only thing. Yeah. It's not, and ma- making money from it is... A Pitiable concern Like he specifically said Early on When he was first Declaring his vendetta To the crew That you know This desire for money Is pathetic To Starbuck And like frankly Given that Starbuck Is the Christian I think it lands Pretty hard Boomer does not In any way claim To care about anything Other than You know Being a decent captain Making some money Having some japes With his uh, surgeon buddy
0: Yeah Yeah
1: Comedy duo (laughs) Statler and Waldorf Jeez uh, But, yeah, no, it's God, I, I love this intersection I love the doubloon I love that this is what Melville decided to do for chapter 100 And you know he could have adjusted the chapter number Given how his chapters are so What decided- are you talking
0: about? When Ishmael wrote this book, he just wrote a chapter as it came to mind yeah. <laughs> No, but I get what you mean, yeah <sighs> It, it does feel like there might be some kind of thought To this being chapter 100 Yeah,
1: and the fact that you lead into it with the doubloon I just think it's You know, once again, I am in awe of the overall structure of this book That managed to be both incredibly poorly structured And purely brilliantly structured At the same time, with one supervening on the other
0: Yes, yes It's
1: good <sighs> Yeah, I, I It feels like I could talk forever about both to the balloon and uh the samuel enderby but I, I do think we've reached the end of what can usefully be talked about it um yeah what tune do we sing for man
0: a dead whale or a stove Oops.